0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products, and I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession, and 5.11 were founded on clothing, the tactical athlete. So They went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all, there are the great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well. Their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our profession's discount. So by registering at GovX.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership And you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend $50 $50, on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. Welcome to episode 357 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Doug Monda. Now, Doug is a retired law enforcement officer spending his entire career in the SWAT team, both as a member and leading, and he is also one of the few guests I had on the show that have literally, not metaphorically, had the gun against the head and pulled the trigger. So this is a very, very powerful conversation, not only about his career, he responded to Hurricane Katrina, he had a near-death experience, almost being murdered by an 11-year-old child. Yes, you heard that right. And then also the journey from his injuries, from his mental trauma to the incredible work he's doing now with Survive First and Trauma Behind the Badge. Before we get to this extremely powerful conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and makes it easier for people to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether within an organization. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's powerful stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Doug Munda. Enjoy. all right so we are sitting here in the residence of doug munda doug i want to start by saying thank you so much for having me here oh my pleasure i'm honored actually yes all right so where on planet earth for people listening are we sitting today
1: Cocoa beach florida the uh home of i dream a genie is what everybody says to me <laughs> yeah that's it
0: <laughs> and ron john's surf shop ron john's and <laughs> kelly
1: slater yeah
0: yeah and hopefully kelly will be on here one day we'll see yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on, here. on that <laughs> yes yeah, sir all right, so starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings?
1: So my, my parents are from Italy. Um, I was born, uh, I grew up and lived in Florida, um, but I was born in New Jersey. Um, we had some family up there, so technically I was born there. I have um, an older brother, uh, four years older, and I have a younger sister, four years younger. And we're all Florida. We all live in Florida.
0: Beautiful. All right. So what did your mom and dad do?
1: So my dad was a uh, like a diesel mechanic. He worked at the phosphate mines um, in Polk County, Florida, center of Florida. And my mom was a stay home mom. My father's passed away and my mother is turning 80 this weekend.
0: Oh, happy birthday to her. Yeah, Beautiful. So as a young man, um, you know, we're going to talk about your professional sports. But when you were a school age, what were the sports that you found yourself drawn to? Soccer. Yeah. Football. That was it.
1: <laughs> football. Yeah. I, just, you, I, I call it football. Nobody else does. But, uh, well, you do. Yes. I so was going to say, <laughs> you're, in a, you're in a safe it. space right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was it. And running. I had a, I had a gift as a runner. Which brought me into soccer. I started playing soccer when I was about five years old, and uh, played even as a police officer. Oh, really? Thirty something years, yeah, yeah. love of my life.
0: So, uh, again, same kind of period of your life. Had you always dreamed of being a police officer?
1: No. So, I mean, what were it, you thinking of? Well, I take that back. So, I guess when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with SWAT. Uh, from you know my era, that you know in the seventies. And the original SWAT show. And I had the little SWAT, like little electric car or pedal car. They were pedal cars back mm-hmm. in the day. And that's what my parents told me. I, I didn't really remember that. And um, I later, be, um, my coach, my triathlon coach, uh, told me that he wasn't going to let me race anymore until I picked a career to follow up when my athletic career ended because it was on its way out. And uh, I said, well, I always wanted to be a cop. The next day, he had the paperwork, and I was on my way to become a cop. How old were you then? I was, probably, I think, 28, somewhere okay. around there. So,
0: lead us through from graduating high school, your professional sports route that you took.
1: So, I actually started playing Division One when I was a junior in high school, and um, that's all I ever did was, if I wasn't surfing, I was playing soccer, and I played uh, on travel teams. Um, my, my entire life. That's all I do is travel and play ball. And then about, I started playing for a semi pro division one team in Miami, um, that was owned by, uh, Colombians and Argentines. And, uh, so I grew up in that industry, South America, playing Central America teams and playing with them. And so I basically started as a junior and then, um, even more so as a senior, like I was only going to school a couple of days a week. And uh, playing ball and then um, graduated high school and left to play ball.
0: Beautiful. Now, one thing I want to make sure we don't skip. There's been many people who come on here who had, you know, mental health challenges, you know, PTSD, etc. Later in their career and then in either in through therapy or even in retrospect, attribute part of it to what they brought into the profession so earlier in their life are there any things when you look back now that you can attribute to it
1: yeah oh definitely um yeah i I came um i had a really uh i would never say that i had a bad childhood but i had a father who was from a different era um he is uh he was a hard-working guy you know the i call him the typical archie bunker and he would work all day and they would come home and he was very well known for his hot rods. He built world-class street rods. And so he would do that, you know, all night long and every weekend. So there wasn't the dad of like coming to my games and or taking me fishing, things like that. You know, he did a good job of making sure I had a roof over my head and I was always fed and stuff like that. But um so I, I would say that was the beginning of my trauma Um I didn't have that, you know, and I wanted that, um, you know, especially getting the accolades that I would as a young athlete. Um, My dad was never in the stands to watch me like all the other guys. And uh, we just never had that relationship. And it was something that I like truly I think I knew probably needed you know um, nobody professionally has ever given me those answers yet but I would say uh, that I needed that more than anything as a young man so I didn't have that father figure guidance you know as a young guy so um, very important I think uh, especially in this day and age that you have good parental guidance.
0: Yeah no and it's, it's interesting I might have people that were blatantly sexually assaulted as children which Mm -hmm. is you know absolutely horrific but then as other people that have been found themselves in exact same place when they were older that one was a middle child and it was a case of the first his older brother was you know the first and they adored him then they wanted a daughter he came along he wasn't a daughter the third one was a girl and so just you know again feeling that from his parents but i can relate my dad loving the bits i've won national titles in martial arts he never saw me fight once yeah so even though you know that didn't really contribute to to anything major later on in life i can still relate to that i just won a fucking <laughs> national title yeah and you missed it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I knew
1: that very well. Yes. So, <laughs> you and I have a lot in common. And, and I was. I was that middle child with a younger sister um, and an older brother. And, and I had a great relationship with my brother and sister, you know, I, and I still do to this day. But, um, but I was the middle one. And I was the one who took all, like, my dad back then used to beat the living tar out of me. Never my brother and sister it was always me. And I probably deserved it. You know, I was a little wild one, but not to the magnitude that I was getting it. And I would even take him for my brother and sister. You know, uh, they would do something and he would come home and I would just be like, yeah, I did it so that they wouldn't have to deal with it. And um, I actually uh, had that conversation with him a week before he passed away. Really? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thanked him. Um, at his eulogy because, um, I told him like, and you know, my family was all there and they, you know, they know the dynamic, you know, we just never saw eye to eye. And, um, I thanked him and I said, cause if you, he literally beat my butt so hardcore and I'm a martial arts guy my whole life. And that I thanked him saying, I've been in such horrible combat situations and ugly situations in my career and in my life that, I think I I took it as training. Like it just didn't phase my dad. And I said, I I probably wouldn't have survived the situations I was in if you wouldn't have raised me as hard as you did. Mm -hmm. So I thanked him.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. We can't change the past so you can draw out what what the positives were.
1: And I don't hold – I did. I hold a lot of resentment through my life with him, um, but I let it all go at that moment. it's kind of been a breath of fresh air after, you know, 40 years of resenting. And and the same thing with the sports, you know. Uh, Just would call up, call home and go, hey, guess what? And it was always like, yeah, whatever, here's your mom. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's tough, you know, because boys want their dads. You know what I mean? They want that, that acknowledgement. And so, yeah, to the original question, I think that was trauma that I brought with me um, that we don't look at. it even affected me with relationships because I never came from that. You know, I never got hugged or loved or congratulated or I'm proud of you. And so it was ultimately difficult as an adult to have that type of relationship if you're not brought up or raised in it.
0: And I think it's a facade, and we see it in our professions, where it is that, you know, suck it up, rub some dirt in it. And and I point out, so, you know, the yin-yang is such a respected symbol and concept, and with, you know, the hard is a little bit soft and vice versa. And mm-hmm. if you became a firefighter or a police officer, inherently your goal is to do good. So mm-hmm. you have compassion towards the people that you're serving. So why is there such a disconnect for having pa- compassion for yourself?
1: Right. Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned the martial arts. I want to touch on that before. So what was that journey? Which was the first art? And then where did that take you?
1: My first one was, if I remember correctly, I was this young kid, guy down the road. It was, uh, it, and I when I was young and in school, I lived in Winterhaven, uh Cypress Gardens, which is now Legoland. And it, I want to say it was a Shotokan school.
0: That was my first one, too. I actually went Taekwondo for a very short time, but Shotokan was when I stuck with yeah. for a while. And
1: then I went to Taekwondo and I trained under a guy named Kum Sung. He was the only grandmaster in the United States at the time. And he was known, he did all the Ninja Turtle movies and things like that. And uh, then when I came to Cocoa Beach, uh, back in the day, Don Wilson had a school here. Don the
0: Dragon. Yeah. Yep.
1: And so I used to play with those guys. And then I got into a aikido um it, here on the coast and then i went i was lucky enough to do some gracie jiu-jitsu schools and uh so i was a uh, well-rounded martial artist
0: beautiful yeah when it's I, funny with the aikido i i, I loved it now and then the cigar movies came out and i was like wow this is what i'm learning and then yeah. and then later you know ufc comes out and I'm like why is no one using aikido and then you yeah. kind of realize all right i get it there's there's <laughs> absolutely value in every art taekwondo has value Shokan has value but now this is kind of like the proving ground i know the street is different than the cage but it does kind of bring out all right muay thai is pretty damn good Jiu-Jitsu wrestling pretty damn good you know you can definitely throw some other things in there but it's showing us the common denominators of what seems to work the best
1: yeah and you're right you know it's funny you're right in the cage yeah keto is difficult to, to use it um but in the streets and as a cop it worked to your advantage you know especially when guys run at you and you know to try to tackle you you know to just take their motion and change it against them and so you, you, there was a time and place for everything
0: yeah yeah and I still I mean some of the wrist locks that they taught years ago are still like in my reflexes
1: yeah and amazing how like when you you know when I try to practice on my wife every now and then <laughs> come at <because> me. she's <laughs> always she's always like shaking her head you know there's nobody else here to play with with so i gotta (laughs) take it out on my wife but yeah it's funny how it doesn't go away
0: absolutely well so that's a great kind of lead up to law enforcement so you've got a a history in professional sports you've got a background in martial arts so walk me through your kind of first couple years in law enforcement what what was did you feel like you were physically prepared for what you did and then and then how did those kind of 10 adult years factor into your first couple years on the streets?
1: yeah it's um it had a lot to do with it. So I got into um the doors open for me in law enforcement because of me being an athlete. It was every reason everything. It was, you know, I went to the interview to meet with a person to apply to get in the academy. And that guy was a soccer fan. And he read my you know, my resume and he's like, Oh, you're a soccer player. And at the time, you remember the Miami Fusion? So I was playing for their their minor team. And so, you know, it was, he shut the folder and was like, welcome aboard. And then I had to go meet with the director of the academy when I got there. And he was a marathon runner. And at the time, I was like a three-hour marathoner, which is, you know, pretty fast. And... He was in awe of it. And so the folder shut and he was like, welcome to the academy. And then I was recruited. You know, I set records at the police academy for running. And, you know, it's just I was an Ironman triathlete. And so during the police academy, I would train, you know, his 12 hour day um, for six months and I would run marathons on the weekend after, you know, between studying. And I would, when everybody would go to lunch at the police academy, I would be running around the parking lot. And I was putting in radical miles on my body in that time. And and so I was recruited for SWAT, um, for a SWAT team.
0: And that was within, what, the first year? Is that right?
1: So I, w- I was recruited in the academy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. And so when I, I got, um, I went to a, a uh, cocoa Police Department, which is not cocoa beach but um the and it was a, a highly violent area it 's uh number six in the nation um per capita right. for violent crime it 's pretty rough as you kn- you probably know and um so uh it was enticing to me to to go do that and because i 'm kind of one of them high speed kind of guys and So I went my first year, you know, there was a one year probation you you have to do before you can go to specialty teams. Well, I went to SWAT school right out the gate. I started going to all the schools and then literally they held a position. And once I hit that one year, I made the team. Wow. And uh, that was uh, that was the start of it.
0: So that was based just on your, your athletics, basically. It was all,
1: yeah. And I was, a, you know, I'm an old country boy, so I could shoot a gun real good. And um, um, I was shot, you know, I was a, one of the, probably one of the best, if not the best in my class, you know, for shooting and, and everything. I, I wasn't good, like I wasn't a paper pusher or smart, but I was more of a hands-on type of guy. And uh, so, yeah, everything just unfolded being an athlete. That's what brought me there. Like I told you, you know, in a prior conversation, um, my coach was like, "Listen." So when I left soccer, you know, I was getting to the point where my body was just beat up really bad from playing soccer, and um, my co- and then I transitioned. It always, I was always a runner. I transitioned into triathlon. And within six months of triathlon, i had already done the Ironman. I did like a small one and then I did the Ironman next. And I just be, became addicted to it. And I, I liked how it consumed my life, you know, and kept me busy. You know, I was running 50 to 70 miles a week. I was biking three to 500 easy and swimming 30,000 meters, uh, you know, a week. I put more miles on my body than people do on their cars. And uh, I brought the, all that mentality and discipline and dedication to the job and that's what they liked and what they saw
0: yeah now what about the mindset you you know you were playing professional sports while you were still in high school you know you went from from soccer and then and then like you said Iron man in six months obviously there's a mental component what do you looking back now think gave you such a resilient mind at that time
1: you know I, I think about that a lot because I really need it right about now, you know, and uh, especially being 50 years old and the body's broken down. But uh, it was... It was just internal in me i i I still have that desire to push myself and test myself and um and maybe just growing out in the boondocks in the middle of orange groves you know and not a whole lot of friends to play with and being a geeky super jock you know i just (laughs) that was all i knew at the time you know but um i i had that that no quit desire in me and i still do no matter what it what it was no, no matter what pain or what, i just kept moving forward kept moving forward
0: yeah now interesting question because as a competitive martial artist basically what i loved about that is that you were on the mat and it was up to you you couldn't mm-hmm. blame anyone else you you know if you lost it was because of your training and i played you know some team sports for for schools and colleges i was at not at a very high level but you know it was the opposite. You know, you were part of a team. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you could, you know, get blamed or whatever it was being part of soccer for so long. Um, but being, you know, a loner prior to that did was, did you notice the, the difference in dynamic of basically the ownership being purely on your performance when you got to triathlon?
1: Yes. Yes. You know, cause obviously it, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, David Beckham, or as my era, Pele, it's an 11 man sport and you need everybody on that team. And I enjoyed the camaraderie. And, uh, but when you lose, the only time it's your fault, which was what happened to me, is we went to the national championships, the team uh, when I was in high school, and we went into a shootout and I was the fifth kicker. Oh. They had hit five, we had hit four, I was number five, and I kicked it right to it, right, right to him. I mean, he didn't even have to bend over, you know, just froze up and, and it was a very traumatizing, uh, event for a young guy to go through. I mean, I literally blew the national championship. I want to say it was in Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami. It was like a big deal. And uh, it nested with me for very, very long, very uh, a lot of years, put it that way. You should have signed up
0: for the England squad. We we blow world titles all the time on the (laughs) penalty (laughs)
1: kicks. Yeah, I had a lot of teammates from Manchester, and that's what brought me to be a Manchester (laughs) fan. Yes, sir. all right. Well then,
0: so now you've done the training, you're, you're in SWAT. So walk me through what it, you know, what was it like not only becoming a police officer, but immediately going in the special operations arena from civilian to now wearing the uniform for you personally?
1: Oh man, it was, uh, it's a transition. Uh, I, you know, I went into it with a different mentality. I, I didn't go in it to write tickets. I didn't go in it to get cats out of trees or anything like that. I went in it to, you know, like you, you know, I have that fight in me. I like to fight. I like things on the extreme limits. And I was in the perfect environment, uh, the perfect storm. You know, it was gunfights every night and that type of stuff. And um, so I immediately got put on to a street crimes unit. And so, all I was doing was jumping out of vans and tackling drug dealers and doing the street stuff. And um, I spent my pretty much my entire career in that capacity, SWAT. Um, and our SWAT team was pretty high speed back then, um, you know, a different era than policing today. And we were uh, really active um you know wasn't a wasn't a a a common year to not have 250 SWAT call outs and search warrants and raiding houses and we would we would you know protect dignitaries and we would help nasa and we would help all the other SWAT teams you know surrounding counties and um so we were very busy and um And a lot of high speed stuff, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, shootings and, you know, all, all the stuff we would even, um, we would, we, our team would get sent to do other work outside. I was actually, uh, part of my story was I was sent to Hurricane Katrina, which was pretty traumatizing, um, you know, so I got to do quite a bit of stuff like that and, um, I even in my career, early in my career, when I made the team, they needed a sniper. And I was, you know, a really good shot. And um, I had that discipline and they knew it. And uh, and they called me into a meeting and they said, why did you why do you want to be on SWAT? You know, it was like the 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 board review. And Mm -hmm. I said, because I want to shoot people and blow things up. And they said, welcome to the team, and You got the job. <laughs> I mean, that was the truth. And that was the type of, you know, I wanted to to be in it. And I was a team guy, you know, I, uh, as much as being an individual athlete. I had always been a team guy, you know, obviously playing soccer. So I was uh, definitely a loyal, I wanted to be with the team. And, um, and so anyway, um, I, I took the sniper position right out the gate and, you um, by by sheer luck, I got um, asked to go to Blackwater, um, if you're familiar with Blackwater. Yeah, contractor company. Yeah, yeah. and um, the Marine Corps was hosting a scout sniper school at, at Blackwater. And I was, you know, the, the only SWAT guy to go to this school. It was all SEALs and Rangers and, you know, SF guys. And uh, so that's how I ended up getting my training was military and Blackwater to become a sniper.
0: Beautiful. And you see that some of the sniper competitions and, and, you know, the events they put on that, you know, law enforcement men and women seem to do well. So, you know, what was it like being the only cop amongst all the military guys? I mean, were you, did you feel like your background up to that point set you up for success or were there any glaring differences?
1: Yeah, it was, it was shocking. Um, So being with so many Marines, they treated me just like one of them. And, you know, I would always kind of be reluctant and, you know, hold back. And, and they were like, no, man, you're you're on our team. You're one of us, man. You're here for a reason. And they, to this day, you know, um, they still, you know, I have friends from there and they uh, have always accepted me. And and which was shocking was they were younger than me, right? You know, most military guys going to school are probably lower 20s. And all they wanted to do is hear cop stories every night. <laughs> tell me cop stories and tell me this. And, and they loved it. And uh, so it was uh, It was really cool. It and this was, was
0: post 9-11, wasn't it? Like early 2000s, is that right? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Okay.
1: It was wow. right after September 11th
0: Right. is when I went. So uh, coming out of that again, what were, were there any significant calls that you look back either just from an interesting cop story or maybe some of the layers of the trauma that you were building up?
1: Yeah, I tell people um, quite a bit. It, it's um, I don't, I don't obviously having a traumatic brain injury. I don't remember times very good, but um, it's amazing in life how they reveal themselves. Or I won't remember one for a year, and then all of a sudden it'll pop up. But um, it's hard to forget faces. Um, I, I have that face photographic memory and and um you you know i I tell people that even as a as a sniper you're you're not handing out cupcakes yeah i have a specific job you know i mean i would get deployed to gather intel and do surveillance and stuff like that but my primary job is eliminate the threat and protect my team from afar and uh so just that pressure alone is intense And um, but yeah, the the trauma that you bring from it, and you know, just the general death and destruction. And if there was one key thing that that I'm asked, what was it that got to me? Was the lack of humanity as we're witnessing again, once in our lives now? You know, do you agree? Like yeah, absolutely. Times right now, it's pretty. I,
0: I don't even agree as far as the majority, but the way it's being portrayed. Right. All we're seeing is negativity and lack of humanity at the moment.
1: Yeah, just a, and a, a horrible lack of humanity. I, I it's it's kind of sad. Um, I, I remember my wife and I were in D.C. and uh, we were standing by the wall, and uh, I just broke down in tears, man. And she's like, "What's wrong?" And I said, "I'm looking around, and there's all guys. You can tell the guys like you and I Red, right, that have been in the in the first responder industry, the military guys, and." everybody's got that look and is upset. And you'd see the Vietnam guys at their wall and the Korean guys. And I said, every one of us have been through a living hell for this country. And look at all these people around here that just don't even care. And they just treat it like it's nothing and disrespect because if we weren't to do our jobs, where would we be at today? And it's, so it's a hard thing to swallow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. that's what i'm seeing at the moment and this isn't again from a left right whatever i i just think our our system is broken that a it seems like every single time we get to an election where oh it's the the what they call that the best of two evils that should never be a decision but secondly regardless of political persuasion we're seeing a lack of leadership and having worked you know, I've worked in multiple departments, so I've seen good leaders. I've seen shitty leaders. I've seen the result of a good leader. I've seen the result of a shitty leader. And I'm not talking specifically the White House, wherever we're just people need to be led at the moment, and they and this needs to stop. You can't portray, man. You saw that hor- horrendous Tulsa shooting the other day, the body cam. I mean, that's the reality of law enforcement. That these these men and women leave their families and go serve a bunch of strangers that. More often than not, it's going to be a different skin color, and them and lay down their lives for them, and in return, they get what we're seeing now. Because, and let's not let's be very clear: some people wearing a badge should never be wearing a fucking badge in the first place. Yeah, absolutely, you I know agree what I mean. So, you, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's it's awful seeing law enforcement specifically getting dragged through the the shit at the moment.
1: Yeah, and you and you're right. There are people out there that shouldn't be in that position. I I remember surfing in the North Shore in Hawaii and a guy that I became friends with out there, he told me, we were talking about, um, it was actually Pat O'Connell. Do you remember Pat? He was from The Endless Summer.
0: Okay. Uh, That movie, movie, The Endless Summer.
1: And we were... he was asking me where I was from and, you know, tell him there. And obviously, when I say Cocoa Beach and everybody knows Kelly, um, and he said this to me, it stuck with me my whole life. He was saying how they're not, they, they like people from Florida because they're polite, but they're not, Hawaiians aren't big fans of Californians and New York because of the high-speed attitude, you know, kind of. And, uh, and he said to me, he goes, Doug, an asshole's an asshole wherever they're from. And I just, it's never left my head. Like it, it don't, you know, there's good cops and there's bad cops and there's good doctors and bad doctors and there's good politicians and bad, wherever you go. But that saying always, and, and I've lived by that, like, hey man, just be nice, you know, don't be an asshole to, you know, give everybody the benefit. It's hard to do, you know, especially in this day and era. But um, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's, it is, I can't watch the news anymore.
0: Well, that's, the problem is you've allowed all the assholes to congregate together, yeah. and then you've televised it, yeah. <laughs> and then you said, "This is America. This isn't America. Yeah, it's this now. isn't even
1: close to America." Generally, and and I, and I I travel the nation all the time, you know, speaking and working, and I meet cops from every every corner of the the U.S., and it's really not like that. I even said that on my show. It's not that bad out there. If 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 people would stop watching social media so much and watching the news, I think people would calm down, not be so aggro, you know, because violence breeds violence and anger breeds anger and all those type of things. That's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. If, you know, if I walk in a room full of violence, I'm going to get violent real quick. Yeah. And um and unfortunately, um that's what era we're in nowadays is people, you know, were consumed. I just started watching that documentary, the social Oh, my
0: God. That's come up with a couple of interviews now. I watched it the other day. Amazing,
1: Amazing. My wife made me watch it the other night because I'm a Big Bang Theory guy at night. I don't want to watch anything serious. And she's like, we have to watch this. And so I did. And it blew my mind. Like, it is so true and so accurate. And being the father of five boys and one girl... Um, you know, I've lived it myself, you know, and currently living it. I've only got two at home anymore. I've got 16 year old identical twins and you know, that they, they don't communicate unless there's a screen in front of them. So, you know, everybody's consumed by that. And, uh, it's, it's horrible. It's actually pretty bad. And it's, you know, people, that's all they see. But when you come to the streets and I, in my presentation, I show a picture to everybody and it's me and two other SWAT guys and it's, um, all of us have our guns drawn on an armed gunman coming out of a store and, uh, and it's, it's about to go down and he's the one, my one buddy is a Dominican. My other very close friend is a black male and then me, the white guy. And I got a phone call from a news lady and she goes, Hey, she goes, and this was during the, I think the Travon uh, is it Travon Martin? Travon
0: Martin that was shot by the era right? Yeah, in, in Orlando.
1: Yeah. In that era and us being neighbors to that area. So I get called to, the, to that and she goes, Hey, is there any racial tension amongst the cops in your department? And I sent her that picture and I said, um, And I told her, like, I'm telling you, you know, what was taking place. And I said, do you think at that moment these three SWAT guys looked at each other and thought he's black, he's Dominican, he's Latin? And I'm no, there is none of that. That's what your job is, is to paint that picture to sell a story or, you know, the social media. But um no. I just, I, I don't see it. You living in Florida, we don't really have it that bad here that, that they do in other states. And, um, and so it's just not as bad on the streets. It's very specific areas, you know, Portland and San Francisco. You know what I mean? Yes, the bigger yeah, well. cities, but... Um, you know, you, you drive down the streets around here and man, especially living on the coast, man, everybody's just happy, man. I'm walking over to the beach and we go to the beach on the weekends and we, uh, this area is popular for Latins and, and, um, and so there'll be a black family, a white family and a Spanish family every weekend right there. And we all have fun together. We, you know, we play in the water. We talk to each yeah, other. Because you people at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless there's, there's of pigmentation. Not, none of that going on. So I say that with encouragement to some people who think that, it, that it's that bad, but it's really not.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and I agree. I live in a beautiful community in Ocala. Um, and there's a, a lake mm-hmm. in the middle. I talk about this a lot. But then there's a track around the lake, you know, walking path. And there's, you know, communal basketballs and tennis and all that stuff. And you know, my community is... Beautifully diverse, black, white, you know, people, immigrants from India, from China, from all over the place, and our kids play together, and we walk, you know, jog, whatever it is, walk dogs, and so again, I, I say exactly the same thing: open your door, and look out, you, you know, your street. Okay, if you're in the middle of Portland right now, you might see a little different, but that's a very, very small part of the yeah. thing. So that, but then also take that same mentality. That's also the only environment that you personally can affect. So if everyone walks out in their community and looks around and is kind to people of all, you know, backgrounds and, and fixes that, collectively, we will have an impact and all these little shit bags that are making all this noise at the moment will be snuffed out. Yeah. But the but and then and even the agencies, as you saw in the the commercial I and mean, in the documentary, the news only cares about advertising space. That's it. That's why they have four shitbags arguing with each other on the screen for hours and hours on end. That's why they ask someone walking past a murder scene two hours later that wasn't even close to it. Hey, what do you think? That's not news. Right. That's just keeping you engaged so that you get to the next commercial break where they can make millions of dollars.
1: Absolutely. It, it, people don't realize that, you know, even social media you know it's yeah. just that's all it is is just horrible stories and uh and i wish that uh, somebody could change something you know in the big saying make america great again eh, america's pretty great
0: I've, I've said the same thing you know it's a pretty o- great place o- open a your eyes again how about yeah. that for a hat
1: yeah <laughs> take your blinders <laughs> off lift your hat up i mean i i have my moments so you know i'm obviously i suffer from depression and post-traumatic stress and um, so, I have my, some dark moments all the time. I'm blessed that I have a wife who babysits me every day and keeps me on track. But, um, you know, but generally, you know, I I built this home. You know, I live like one block from the beach, man. I, I, I can't ask for anything more. I'm, you know, I'm currently healthy. My kids are healthy and I'm making money. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not starving. And so, you know, I, I just don't see it that bad.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, just before we kind of progress to... Yeah, you know, the kind of mental health journey that you were on. You did touch on Katrina. You know, saying that was pretty horrific. So, were there any specific events that you had to do or witness that you know stuck with you there?
1: Yeah. So there was quite a few. Um, there's a couple that I can't talk about, but um, the the it, it generally. Um, you know, I'm a Florida boy, so I've lived every hurricane known to man, from mm-hmm. Andrew, David, even back in the day. You know, I we uh, my family was hit by David. And we were in a camper camping. Oh wow! <laughs> it was not as a young kid. Some right? Wizard of Oz stuff. So, right so right yeah, <laughs> it was. It was. You, you nailed it on the spot. Man, we were in a camper, and it it wasn't on the ground for long. But uh, I I was used to it. But what took place is when we were driving in, we were coming in a caravan and we were obviously undercover and we were delivering uh, weapons, ammunition and water and supplies. And we were going to help out um, because the looting and the rioting was was so bad. And as we were pulling in um, and, you know, like probably the Alabama area coming in, the destruction, you started to see it. And you started to see fishing boats, like remember the forest gums shrimp boat, mm-hmm. like they were everywhere. That's the only way I can remember. And it was funny. It was about the time of Bio Labatro, Alabama. We cut, you know, and I you, it, it all hit and they were on top of Walmart's and they were like 30 feet in the trees and there was clothes on, you know, 30 plus feet up in the air. And, um, it was, uh, pretty radical sight to see and uh, you know even for me being exposed to it before but what i noticed was um excuse me the lack of humanity already and we had to stop for fuel and people tried to attack us and they were like running at our cars and until then once we Got out of the cars and they seen guys with machine guns and camo. Then they backed off. We had uh, we we a motorcycle gang tried to take us off the road, and and so we pulled off and got out of the car with a lot of a lot of weapons. And they were like, "Oh, sorry, man, wrong wrong truck. Yeah, you got the wrong Mm -hmm. truck." And then it was you know, people walking down the streets or holding signs on the, you know, kind of reminds you of that movie um, where all the car, everybody, the, the meteor's coming and everybody's trying to leave and it's gridlock yeah. and people are walking, you know, like Armageddon or one of those movies, right? And that's how it was. And um, people were, had signs like North Carolina, Virginia, Tampa, whatever, you know, and they had nothing. You know, there was just it'd be mom, dad and two little kids in a cardboard sign. And then you would we got closer in and there was people walking down the streets in chest deep water with bodies floating and, you know, all the stuff you, that you saw and carrying a flat screen TV, you know, and we're going, where are you going with that? You know, and then I remember the first night there, it sounded like Beirut. It was just gunfire all night long and everywhere you went. And it was people like robbing and stealing. And and the the news wasn't selling that. The news was selling people on their roofs, right? Like if you look even to this day. And they were
0: were back then, I remember, they were selling, why isn't anyone helping the black people? Right. I'm pretty sure they're helping everyone they come across. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, we... that's yeah. That that was. I remember that being, but which wasn't the case. You know, everybody was helping everybody, and um, and but there was that environment, as for lack of better terms, in those hoods. Um, they were robbing and killing and shooting people, and and it devastated me. Like, what are you doing? Like, man, don't you see we're in a national crisis here, and you're robbing and stealing and killing for a TV or, you know, something like that. And that lack of humanity amongst all the other stuff that I, I was involved in there and saw was, uh, really put a bad taste in my mouth. Um, and it, it was traumatizing and I came back to work and just went right back to business. You know, the very next, you know, it was no break, no debriefings. We didn't talk about it. And uh, it impacted me. And I wasn't aware of how bad it impacted me until, you know, my ultimate meltdown. And when I started to get professional help and it was revealed, Um, that was the first thing that was revealed to me. And I was in a hospital um, for post-traumatic stress disorder back then. Nobody even knew about it, but it was a doctor who dealt with only military and, and law enforcement and pilots. And he was the one who explained it to me. So that was all new to me. And that was the uh, probably one of the, the biggest kickoffs to it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to obviously move forward with that. But going back to Katrina, I remember I was at Anaheim Fire when it happened. I can clearly see myself in Station 6 watching the the TV. And I'll never forget this. And, and you know, that lack of humanity, I think, was was so awful that it was systemic so it wasn't just the people down the ground but uh geraldo rivera yeah i'll never forget this he flew down and it was like under an overpass and he's standing there with his little microphone. Oh, this is disgusting. We were down here, you know, a day or two days ago and the same people are still here. I'm looking at the TV going, well, then why didn't you fucking take him with you in your little helicopter then? Yeah. But that was it. They didn't <laughs> yeah. care about actually helping anyone. He just wanted yeah. to report and be angry yeah. so they could sell more advertising space and so people transfixed to their TV. Yeah. But I always I looked at this and I'm like, what is different between nine twelve? And the day after Katrina. Right. Because they were so different. Right. In, you know, with you actually being there on the ground, looking back, why do you think there was a difference between what happened in New York and everyone banding together and an amazing sense of community and it, what appeared to be almost the polar opposite in Louisiana?
1: Yeah. It, it, from what I saw, um, I I saw... Um, you know, I used to call them country boys with airboats and John boats and they there was even some of them dudes with the big swamp buggies like ripping through, you know, the water and stuff because there was alligators and snakes and wildlife and and they were helping anybody they could. They were it, it didn't matter what color you were, if you were you were floating or you were they were, they were helping and they were rescuing dogs, you know, that were swimming. And so I did see that. But I also saw the same thing that I saw in the community that I worked in and which is a very sensitive subject, Uh, you know, it is far back even as to the black on black crimes. And, you know, I've witnessed that, you know, I spent uh, my whole career, a portion of my career working in low income community, um, government housing, you know, 17, 80 percent of the entire town's government housing. And uh, so I was witnessing that crime. Um, in in stealing and robbing, and I think with uh, New York with September uh, uh, the September 11th and the 12th was a it was you know another organization country attacking us. It wasn't a natural disaster of a hurricane. It was somebody attacking us, and there wasn't the opportunity to rob and steal and pillage in the in as some people call it the ground zero era or area and um but there probably was you you know and and unfortunately that's where even white collar crime as some people call it comes in people trying to take advantage of people and there was probably that but there was so much of an emphasis and focus on um the the ISIS and the terror attacks and things of that nature, Al Qaeda, that that took some of the focus away from, you know, on the ground. Do I make sense of why, you know, the two differences? Because, you know, obviously, September 11th just passed and most of the social media posts were like. Why I can't wait for a September 12th. Why can't we have a September 12th Mm -hmm. now? Yeah, that was the big thing for this year is more focus on September 12th, which is an amazing day. It really showed people and I wish everybody would focus and look at that. It was an amazing day because it was it did not matter who you were, where you were. Um, your economic background or nothing, it was like, hey, we need to take care of each other because we're under attack. Mm-hmm. And how we, can I help? How can I help? And you look at the pictures of cops helping people. You know there's a famous picture going around now a guy's whole he's, his whole face is bloody he's hurt but he's carrying a, is a white cop carrying a black lady mm-hmm. and you know which picture i'm talking about it was all there's over, a lot so, of iconic you yeah know, why can't that's what we need to focus on and not focus on the political agenda you know what i mean politicians yeah. trying to get paid and make money and that's probably a lot to do with what's going on now
0: yeah absolutely Well, just one other kind of segue I want to get to before we take the the mental health journey. You did a lot of work with DEA and and kind of the the drug side of things. So before I come at you with a different angle, kind of what what did you see as far as the level of addiction on in the community and the effectiveness of, you know, arresting the addicts that you had? You know, just 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 the, the tactics of combating that that you saw through your career.
1: It, it, it changed three times. So when I first started, um, you know, I was going after drug dealers. Yeah. You know, I spent my whole career chasing, t- chasing drugs and, in, in in the streets and, uh, and so it was the drug dealers. And, it, you know, I started in the era before heroin and the opiates, you know, so it went from, you know, I, I transitioned from the crack cocaine, cocaine to crack cocaine to opiates and then to the heroin. And, you know, so we would we would work on the ground level and arrest people, I uh, see, because that's part of the tree, you know, to get. The snitches and confidential informants and people to tell on other people, and that's part of the process. But um, it was when the opioid uh, epidemic kicked off. You know, it was coming from all different angles. It wasn't a inner city thing. Um, It was you know because uh, rich people had prescriptions in their cabinets that had insurance, and there was abundance. So it was all different dynamics that we were experienced with or exposed to. And then, um, so what transitioned was, you almost build a, a uh, you know, cops have that look, as I teach this, they, you know, they have that look in, in, on their face, because when you go to work every day of your life, and all you deal with, and I used to tell, uh, you know, I used to tell my pastor this all the time, I don't see God on the streets. I only see the enemy. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, all day long, I don't see God. I'm 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 missing it. Yeah, I used to crave it. I needed. I used to crave kindness and goodness, and it was always such a treat when people would do something nice or say something nice to us, right? Because we we're so much on the streets with bad stuff, and um, so you get this animosity and this jaded thing that everybody's a dirtbag, everybody's a dope dealer, and everybody's on drugs, and you know it's it. And I would see it. And we would work stings, and I would be the drug dealer on the corner. And and it, the people who were coming up and buying drugs were school teachers and restaurant workers and car salesmen. And so it really got me jaded to where everybody's a dirtbag. And then um, um, part of my story, and this will, uh, this is the hardest part for me, is um, the opiates transition became pretty radical. And I happened to run into a lady one day um, who was walking across the street. There were some gang wars going on. And the SWAT team got sent to the school to walk, you know, sit around the perimeter of school because they were shooting from each over the school. There was projects on each side of this elementary school, and they would take shots at each other over the school and drive-bys. So we wanted to protect the kids. And so me being uh, was the leader of the team, I was standing out in front of the school, and this lady walked out with a brand-new baby. And um, I said, ma'am, I said, um, she goes, I need to go get my daughter. I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I said, "Put get real close to me and put the baby between me and you up against my back. Cause I had, uh, my SWAT vest on. And I said, if somebody shoots, I can take the bullet. And, um, and she was a much older lady, upper sixties, um, th- to have a baby. Right. And I said, and I was like, and at, even at the era, I didn't really like, I didn't want to be around kids no more, man. My kids had worn me out and you know, I just was not a big fan of being a parent at that era. And, uh, I said, man, your son is just beautiful. He's just most beautiful kid I'm, there's a moral to this story no, i'm telling you no, please and um so anyway she's not my son she goes the parents abandoned them at the hospital um they're heroin addicts and the mother had, gave birth and got off the table and left and they didn't want him. and she sweet, so got into a conversation and she said, um, "You know anybody who would take him?" She's like, "I already have a four-year-old that I adopted. She was a foster parent, is what she was." And my husband's dying; he's not very healthy. And uh, and she goes, "I can't even go Christmas shopping." It was like Christmas time, you know, beginning of December. And she goes, "I can't even go Christmas shopping for my daughter because I'm taking care of him." And being the mom, being a, an addict, he had he his first day of life, he had vomited over a hundred times withdrawing right so I said well ma'am I said I'll tell you what my girlfriend and I at the time it was uh, an old girlfriend I said we'll babysit I said I'll tell you what we'll go to the mall with you and we'll watch him while you while you shop. I go well you obviously see I, I can be trusted, you know, I'm a cop. I'm I'm not some dirtbag and I said and I've been a dad for a long time. I know what to do. And she said, "You would do that?" I said, "Yeah, so we did. That that end of the week, we took him to the mall. And I just I had money at the time. I had a beautiful home. I had, you know, my ducks in a row, at least I thought I did, you know. And uh so I go, "Let me just give this kid a a, a good I don't want him to spend his very first Christmas right I didn't even know him but um so we did and we walked him around the mall and we took him to see Santa and bought him some clothes and stuff and I walked up to the lady and I said I'm not giving him back and she goes you she says you want to keep him I said yeah I don't want this kid to go I just fell in love with him and um and so th- that's the beginning of a long story with uh my so that's my son Cameron my adopted son. And um, the parents wanted nothing. The courts tried for years to give them back and they just didn't want them. And they had already given away three other children. And um, they were so consumed with addiction, back to the original question. And so what it did is it aggravated me because I was a kid who grew up feeling like my dad didn't want me. And I was like, how do you not want your own child i i couldn't fathom it over drugs and um and i did some research on these parents obviously being in that industry and they were they were repeat offenders you know he had been a the dad or not the dad i'm his dad the biological father was uh he had attempted murder charges on him domestic and in multiple drug charges and and they just didn't want him so to the original question, I became very jaded towards opiate addicts. And I went on a war path and I was like, I'm going to arrest every opiate addict on the planet. And and, it, and I did. I mean, I went off on a tangent. Dope dealers, heroin addicts. I didn't care what it was. And that was phase number two of that. And then um, years down the road. I had started, I I went undercover again and I was working with the DEA task force and we were doing a lot of big work like that. And, um, I learned a little bit more, um, you know, by then. And what I realized, um, was I'd started having mental health problems. So I started to, um, be more exposed to mental health and the, the connection of addiction and mental health and trauma. I was ignorant to it in the beginning I was a dope guy so you were the dope dealer I was the cop cops and you're, we're cowboys and Indians right but I had learned the connection, and I had met some amazing addicts, um, and I, I actually lived with them for a little while. Really? Yeah, and to this day, they are some of my closest friends. Call me weekly to check on me, and, and I learned their stories and why they became addicted to opiates, and, um, and I realized I am no different than them. None of my guys on my unit were no different. We just chose a different path. And once you learn the stories and you really understand the mentality of addiction, and uh, it blew me away. And so what we started doing was we would meet, we would have different conversations with, when I would arrest people or come across, you know, people who are buying or, you know, get caught with drugs and they always had this story, you know, that was valid, you know, uh, that trauma. And so what we started doing was helping them going, Hey, here's the deal. We'll make you, we'll give you an option. You can work your charge off and I won't put you, I won't charge you with A, B, C, and D. I'll, I'll cut you a break. And, you know, and a lot of people would ask for help. I'm addicted. I can't, I, I can't, I don't have insurance. I can't get help. Nobody will help me. And we would say, Hey, well, We'll get you help we'll we'll get you on the path and um and 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 I watched my other uh agents do the same thing. I watched it transition and change it's probably one of the proudest moments in my career to to witness to you know for the addiction side so there are the three different journeys that I took, and I went from being and to this day um I have friends on my Facebook that are addicts that I arrested that I helped. And they're my friends now. And, they're, and, and there's a couple that I'm just incredibly proud of because I saw where they were. And now they're successful, successful business people contributing to our economy and our environment. And um, they're success stories. And so um, that was uh, my, my three different journeys through addiction and, and being a drug agent.
0: That's so powerful. So, firstly, thank you for telling that story. We were talking a little bit before, you know, I primed you on, mm-hmm. you know, a, a reoccurring theme. But this is such a great platform to ask, you know, first responders, law enforcement, you know, military, from all these different professions, medical, psychology, and an underlying, you know, reoccurring theme is the streets are dangerous because of the illicit drug trade we have people in mental health crisis that are turning not just to illicit drugs alcoholism you know within our professions is rife um and it you know we talk about change well to me having been in countries and literally sat down in front of a person in a foreign country who has spearheaded um a an incentive that has literally reversed the ill health of their nation i've seen it with my own eyes and the the prohibition of drugs that was founded on a racist shitbag back in the 30s mm-hmm. and just witnessed the absolute failure of the prohibition of alcohol. You know, we don't see Budweiser and Smirnoff stabbing each other in the streets anymore, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but right. that's, to me, that... if. If someone actually had the balls to step up and say we're going to start treating addicts like patients, like there's a mental health issue and funnel these people through addiction programs, job creation, you know, uh, rehab, obviously. To me, I, it just seems like it would cut the head off the snake. Now you would have funding for law enforcement. You'd be able to ride two to a car. The, the the court system, you wouldn't sit in jail for a year waiting to see a judge. The prisons would be safer, far more, you know, less populated. So, you know, that's a huge loaded question, but it does kind of tack on to what you saw with your own eyes. What would be your perspective on that kind of philosophy in this country and, and the UK and Australia and all these other places that have it?
1: I agree 100 percent with the we had um, um, in the Clinton era and um, uh, up until the Obama era, we had programs from the U.S. attorney's office. They were called weed and seed and project safe neighborhoods. And they were um, they were DOJ funded. And, um, and I worked very closely, uh, you know, on, on all the boards and they, they basically the weed and seed was the drug dealers and SWAT guys would weed out the bad guys. And then we would come back and seed programs and educational programs and youth programs. And, uh, we had funding for that and overtime money for to help the police departments to facilitate, you know, especially in a high crime area. We work really hard and long hours to combat the criminals. So the, the overtime funding is not what cities allocate for, for programs like that. So yeah. they were great programs and after school programs. And um, I personally started a program in my community called Cops and Kids. And I would teach kids how to enter city kids how to swim. Because we would have drownings because, you know, inner city kids don't have pools, right? And I grew up on the coast, so swimming was natural. And I would make them go through a week of swimming and then a week of history like library or science museums and, and take them out of the hood. And show them there's more to life to that. And then the third week was all fun. Taking to Disney World and SeaWorld and water parks to say, hey, there is more to life than just guns, drugs, and crime. And we had funding for that. And ironically, uh, at the oh, kickoff of the Obama era, all that funding left. Really? And it has not come back yet.
0: See, and that's, and and that's, that's just to it. interject as well. That's the thing. People will be like, oh, we've got to, you know, our president is, is male or female or is black or white or whatever. It's like... Until we change the the people that we're putting there, it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter who yeah. they go to bed with. I just want a really good leader. And this we keep churning out the same people. And right. I think Obama was a good statesman. I think he'd be a good foreign secretary, for example. People seem to like him and interact with him. But, yeah, I mean, you know, we hear the military. They got cut incredibly. Oh, you know, the drug policies in prisons now, the drug... um uh, You know, the addiction programs in prisons are getting cut. I mean, all those things behind closed doors that are actually making a difference. Whatever the person in the administration seems to be getting less and less and less, not more and more.
1: Right. And even with the saying of defunding the police, which is the most ridiculous thing on the planet. You you guys are so overpaid already, though. Yeah, right. (laughs) I know. We don't get that firefighter pay, though. (laughs) But the defund the police, you need to fund them more for their programs and and there's a in in that uh, the attention is not on those organizations but police departments across the nation do wonderful things in their communities for after-school programs and educational programs and i even was a board of director for the ymca that we collaborated with our department to get the kids after school to and me being an athlete i was big On promoting that in the inner cities because I I always felt I had that opportunity. I I grew up a very poor family and a YMCA gave me my first soccer game. I went to play at the YMCA, just bomb fluke. My neighbor's like, hey, we're short players today. Can I borrow your son? Because they used to see me running up and down the road. I was five years old and I went and played And I never stopped playing from there. The YMCA gave me a home. So I was partial to that. And I would always do these speeches for their, you know, their big conferences and say, how many Michael Jordans and the great, the goat, I'm a big fan of Michael Jordan, you know, I'm not, and and I just think he's one of the greatest athletes ever. And I was like, and Serena Williams, how would, how are we going to find the next Serena? And how are we going to find the next Michael Jordan if there's nowhere for these kids to play ball? If we don't focus on that and the Whitney Houston's, you know, where are all the Whitney's? If we don't give these kids opportunities, we're never going to know that. So those were important programs that that need to take place. And they're just so hard to exist now. And now people want to take money away from departments. That's that. That's what we need to focus on. Listen, people all the time say, oh, you know, you know, they're shooting and killing people. Well, listen, man, you have you ever seen the thing with Chris Rock? How, how not to get your ass kicked by the police? Yes. It's the funniest thing ever. I put it <laughs> on my Facebook the other day. You know, don't commit crimes. It's mm-hmm. pretty simple, right? So, yeah, we do as a nation, we need to reevaluate ourselves and, and get better communication out there. And unfortunately, <laughs> we're in a political nightmare you yep. know, I, and uh, I, I pray to God that it gets better. doesn't look very good for us, but I, I hope it gets better and we can focus those programs and, and get that back to where it needs to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I'm a broken record with this topic, but I've, you know, so I've sat with the the gentleman in Portugal, Xiao uh, Gulao, and seen that. I've sat with a prison guard. I'm actually going to um, talk to him again next week. The prison governor of Bastoy in Norway, one of the most progressive and effective prisons in in the world. I sat with a guy from Finland talking about their education system and how important it is to funnel money into more desperate neighborhoods mm-hmm. so that you can bring those men and women up. So you take the drug issue. You know, you mentioned Whitney. Well, she died of an overdose, too. She had more money than God. Right. But mental health is mental health. Right. You know, but how can you expect communities to come up and not see the police as the enemy and not kill each other when you've created an environment that's a war ground? Right. And, and, you know, when I talk about other countries, oh, that will never happen here. Why? They're human beings. So if they're not murdering each other in the streets in Norway or, you know, wherever in the world, why are we not looking at them and going, how are you doing that? Right. But we're not. This is your brain on drugs. You know, and then it's like, no, that's absolute bullshit. It's time that we look at all these programs around the world that are working. And as I said, you know, we started recording that kindergarten thing. You know, we once were all preschoolers running around just not even paying attention to anything other than that's my friend Steve and we like kicking a ball, Yeah, you know, and we lose that. So we are all fundamentally human beings and we can absolutely change it. But if we set these men and women up for failure, some will come out regardless because they're amazing human beings. But it's the same as obesity. Oh, you shouldn't be fat. Yeah, you're right. But if there's a McDonald's on every corner, you can drive through every single business. Mm -hmm. Is that an environment to set you up for success?
1: Right, uh, you hit it on the spot, and we we definitely we 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 do need to do that. I mean, the the funding obviously is a big component, but we have people, man, that are are, are dying, and as you said earlier, they should be looked at as patients. and And I used to, um, you know, obviously being a a, a dope guy, um, I would, you know, there's people who need to go to jail. And then there, a person who's addicted to drugs, there's a, obviously a, a physical, a mental issue there that, that they need to get fixed. A person who's addicted to drugs, sitting in jail is not going to help that person. Now, somebody who's murdering and robbing and killing, yeah, he needs to be on lockdown. He's a menace to society, he or she. Absolutely. But somebody with an addiction problem, no, we're focusing in the wrong area. I mean, you got people who can't, like I have a buddy who's a very successful businessman. He's got, he got a, a stupid uh, drug possession when he was a kid. He's a grown man. He's a father. He lives in a beautiful home and beautiful business. He can't vote. His vote isn't ballot because he has a felony on his record. He got busted with one pill years ago. This guy is not that level of it. A pill of what? It was uh methadone. Oh, was it? He okay. was addicted to uh, opiates. He got hurt and uh he, he got addicted to it, so he went and got some to get off on his own.
0: So how ridiculous is that? I've I've I did ecstasy in England. Well, yeah. actually in Japan, technically. The mushrooms were legal there, ecstasy wasn't had time my life danced, hugged a bunch of people and went back to work the next day right and that's you know horrendous but like you said I could have taken a whole bunch of oxy at work and everyone would be like, oh it's a prescription that's fine yeah what's right. where what what or drank myself to death you know right?
1: Yeah. And it, it it doesn't change who you are or anything like that. But, you know, it's all the perception of what people, as some say, you know, liberals or conservatives or whatever. It's really no, it's a human being, you know, and and whatever the reason was is the reason that it was. And, you know, we have to come up with better plans to fix it and to deal with it. I mean, a person um that that is going to prison for possession of marijuana. I, 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 just don't get it. I, people ask me that question all the time in my entire career. I fought daily. I never fought anybody who is, um, high from smoking weed. Nah, they just want to have a conversation. Right. And, uh, but man, put a couple drinks in that person and I've fought some drunks in my day and uh, bad. Right. And, and, but that's illegal. Well, it's not legal to drink and drive, but it's legal to go buy as much alcohol as you want. Yeah, and you then, know,
0: and that's the thing is, is you have the people, which is you know a lot of people that enjoy beer, wine, whatever, you know, and use it to decompress a little bit, um, and that's great. But excessive drinking is the same as excessive opioid use. Is the same as using you know meth and everything else. You're masking something, so it's not oh alcohol is legal and there's a problem it's these are all tools to fill in a void in your brain so what are we if we're not addressing the mental health element then we're not fixing the problem and if we're driving you know addicts and and, in prostitutes into the shadows i mean i you know to write about one of the stories in my book is finding a a dead prostitute in a dumpster in orlando you know really sad part was it didn't even faze us because it was like business is normal there but how sad is that that woman was probably an addict as well. And then she was even even what she was able to use to raise money. She had to be in the shadows, and either a john or a pimp or whoever it was that did it strangled her. And the last thing she ever saw was you know the the neon lights on obt, and then she was flung into a dumpster. That's the face of the illicit drug trade.
1: Right, absolutely. And you know, you made a, s- a statement a second ago. You can overindulge in alcohol, and which is no big deal. Like quite a few people do it. I've been known to do it myself. And the the same with opioids and it. But what's the difference in overindulging in in ice cream? Because man, I'll tell you, I can knock a gallon out myself every night. And if I did that every day and every night, the same effects. You know, maybe not technically or medically, but the same effects would come from doing that. You'd yeah. end up dying from heart failure and obesity and all those other things. But ice cream is not illegal. You can buy as many as you want, right? but if we don't if we don't change the way yeah we've got issues and it's not it it anyway I'm getting off topic but uh I agree with you 100% when it comes we need to change the way we do business out there I mean and and like you said earlier I go to other countries and they don't have those problems and but I think we need to you, it's amazing as a sniper you know you learn man if you open your eyes you, it's amazing what you can see. And if our country would open our eyes and look and start not be so egotistical, like, oh, we're the greatest nation. We don't care what anybody else is doing. There's, man, every country is doing something wonderful. And we can learn from them and do something different. And, you know, I, I've been to Africa twice in the past couple of years. This year we didn't get to go. And um, uh, one of the greatest country I've ever been to. And the greatest people, and I just, I love it there, and I love the people there. And every time I go there and I stay in this village, you know, on a conservation lodge out in the middle of the bush, you know, and and, uh, go on safari. And every question that comes out of every South African's mouth is, who's your favorite football team? Not the Cowboys, football like mm-hmm. you and I know. Like one, when you kick it with your feet, yeah. you mean? Football? Yeah, real football. Not throwball? Yeah, not throwball. <laughs> and uh, real football. The only sport that brings nations together countries together and as you know like with world cup it's sheer honor to step on the field and play other countries
0: yeah i love that i'm not even a big football fan it's funny but i always watch the world cup yeah even though i know england's gonna drop the ball before they get close to the finals (laughs) not always though they've
1: had their moments right they're looking good this year yeah
0: i'm I'm excited
1: yeah me too so um you you know i I got all excited talking about soccer again (laughs) but uh so you know, we. I learned that in Africa, like you know, that's they care about eating and surviving and taking care of each other and honor and dignity and integrity and we've lost a lot of that type of stuff. And I, it's amazing what we've learned, what you can learn from other countries and other places, and that's something maybe we should start focusing on.
0: Absolutely. Well, you just had a great analogy too, as a sniper. We need to stop looking down the scope and open the other eye yeah and that's exactly it. i think what we're seeing in the scope is what they want us to see and they sounds very conspiracy theory but follow the money it's yeah. all down to you being a consumer and what we're seeing out there people are dying you can't be a consumer for that you have to look at you know everything that's going on in the world and realize that there's so much more that we have in common than then and we should celebrate our differences too and oh, there are, absolutely. There are shitbags in the world, but they're a minority, and we have to understand that. Not minority with skin color, a minority of, as you said, assholes in the world right. that in themselves probably are fighting mental health issues and social media, and rioting is their addiction. Yeah. You know, so that's pain even manifesting itself that way, too.
1: And they're getting paid to riot, and they're, you know, for political agendas. I witnessed it. I was in Salt Lake a couple of weeks ago. I saw it with my own eyes. Really? Yeah, It was it was heartbreaking heartbreaking and the people weren't even from salt lake city no same as the football hooligans they used to change shirts (laughs) just to go (laughs) fight someone yeah just to fight but you know with the addiction thing we were um i just remembered is the um if you if you when you go to the doctors they give you pills and obviously last year i spent um i think three months hooked up to machines I got super sick from shoulder surgery and almost killed me and they had to eat me, you know, whatever reasons they had me on all kinds of opiates. I wasn't aware of it. And then when I got a little better, you know, I got to experience what it was like coming off of that stuff and sickness and, but I'm not a, I, I thank God I'm, I'm not a pill taker or anything like that, never have been, but it upset me like how is this acceptable? So if you use these drugs that are prescribed to you um, and it, it, you become addicted to them. They're an addictive medication. And if you screw up on them, you get arrested and put in jail. But the dude who is making them and selling them suffers nothing. Mm-hmm. He's Makes allowed to billions. make billions of dollars. And this industry is allowed to make a chemical that kills people and ruins people's lives. And nobody points any fingers that way. They have no consequences. But the person who who does what the doctor says and then becomes addicted to it gets their life ruined. And ruins other people's lives, you know, like the parents that ruined my son's lives, you know um you know my my cameron's life so yeah you know we we that's a that's a long conversation topic (laughs) as you said like we could go a million different ways with it but um it all circles back to mental health
0: yeah well that's a great segue so let's get back to your journey then so when when did you notice within yourself or someone outside of you notice that things weren't as they should be for you mentally
1: um, unfortunately for me, by the time I realized that it, it was too late, um, uh, I had a guy on my show, he was my partner, um, and SWAT and we got hired the same day. We made SWAT the same day. We ran the team together and he, um, to, to this day, he, he, you know, he's my, he's one of my guys who calls me and tells me he loves me, you know, all the time just to let me know. And, um, that's important especially for, you know, as some guys call us, pipe fitters and hitters and, you know, spec op guys, and he um, he would stop me, and my behavior changed radically. Like, when I became a cop, you know, I was always, I'm a Cocoa Beach kid, I'm a surfer, man, you know, hey, dude, everything's cool, I'm going surfing this weekend, nothing to worry about, I had a, a great attitude, and I, rem- I, va- I, I vaguely remember him, but I remember that Doug you know, how he used to be, and it was all about competing and sports, and, and I loved my kids, and I was, you know, a good dad at the time, and I would hire Santa Claus to come to my house, and, you know, whatever it would take. I bought my kids everything they wanted, and I remember that guy vaguely, and um, and the guys would come to me, and specifically my teammates, and they'd say, hey, man, what's wrong with you? And I'd look at them, and I would be like, What the fuck's wrong with you? That's what I would say to him. And then they would ultimately just back off. And, you know, um, and that era changed and my attitude changed and things like that. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, then my friends didn't want to be around me because I became so mean and nasty and violent. And then I would get worse because, you know, part of being depressed, you manifest things and nobody likes me and everybody's in, you know, as Dr. Gilmartin said, you know, everybody's an asshole. When you walk down, oh, he's an asshole. He's an asshole. But I was the asshole and being one. And I would just experienced a failed marriage 17 years. I think my, my former wife and I were together and she's the mother of all my kids. And uh, the marriage had failed because I had become engrossed and consumed in my work. Um, I was so busy doing my job, I wasn't home doing my job anymore. So I separated from my family, and my kids, and it just became ultimately horrible. Um, and uh, sadly, it, it, at that era, my environment, my work environment, they weren't aware of mental health. So they just thought I was being a jerk. And, but I was also liked and I was one of the boys. I was one of the golden childs of the department. And, and so a lot of stuff that I was doing was overlooked and not addressed. And then it just became, you know, that's my reputation now As you know, most people say, man, guys, he's a madman. He's a lunatic. Yeah. I get called all those names and I'm okay with it. I own my stuff. But that was what started in that era. And so what they they got, they started to get used to it. And they go, oh, man, that's just Doug, man. You slip up, Doug's going to whoop your ass. And that's how I became on the streets. You know, I became violent and became crazy. I would do stuff on my own. And and so um, that kind of became the norm. And then my bosses and my administrators, they liked me. So they would just turn a blind eye. And it just became the norm. And I became the guy, you know, they used to call me uh, the dude from the Mel Gibson guy. You know, they were like, well, get Doug to do it. And to this day, I would get called from mayors and, hey, we got a problem. You know, can you fix this for us? Yeah. They they would take the leash off me. And they'd say, go get him. And I would go get him. And, and that became a norm. And what was taking place was... I was suffering horribly from post-traumatic stress. And, uh, you know, like nowadays, I've been told also I'm the poster child of it. I have all the disorders and they've ruined my life, so to speak, you know, in a certain aspect. But um, anyway, so it, it, it changed my, my whole mentality, the whole way I did business at work. And ultimately, um, it you know I'm going to get onto another subject, but interrupt me so I no no carry um, on. So uh, it you know work was good, being an athlete was good. Um, you, you know things were in place at the time, but um, the the mental component came in, and then there was a, a perfect storm. So I had already been in that environment, like where everything had changed and my alcohol uh, usage became significantly. I've, I've been drinking since I was a teenager. Yeah. My mom and dad, man, they used to look at me and go, that's not normal. Nobody drinks a whole bottle of alcohol by themselves. And I was like, that's ah, no big deal. And I would get up and play ball. Like, you know, so I had that, it, but it got worse, you know, at this era. And my, um, my behaviors became significantly worse, you know, with that. And then what took place was one particular day, um, there was a, a call came out of a reckless truck that was driving through yards, trying to run people over. And, um, me being the shit magnet as they called me where <laughs> I was the dude who could go to drop something off at the church and get into a shooting with the pastor. That way I, it did not matter where I went. I was going to attract some sort of hellish, uh, activity. <laughs> and, um, so I happened to be right around the corner and here comes this truck. It was a big Dodge Ram pickup truck, which is ironic because that's the eighth Dodge Ram truck in my driveway. I'm a big Dodge Ram fan. And, uh, and we started chasing it. And I was uh, there was a regular cop, you know, in the black and white with the video camera in it. He was one of my SWAT guys, and he was following me, so he had it on camera. And the car was literally trying to run people over, driving through yards, running mailboxes, tree. It was bad. And um, we chased them, and the the truck spun out in an intersection. And when it spun out, um, I working in the hood. When the car wrecks, as you know, man, it's run time. They get out and they run, and that was the best thing because if you ran for me, you better pack a lunch. You're not nobody ever (laughs) and nobody ever outran me in my career. Yeah, right? world champion, triathlete. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, they um, the car spun out, and I quick got out of my car. And when I did, I walked to the nose of the car, and so um, my car was here, and this was a gigantic oak tree next to my car, so I positioned myself like this. Because I'm a tactical guy, just in case the guy's going to start shooting. And the truck started up and started coming towards me. And I'm like, oh, man, this dude's going to ram me. And it was too late for me to retreat or anything. So I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to shoot this guy. I need to stop. He's trying to kill people. And that uh, it, it was in the later afternoon. And as the trucks approaching me, I can't see in the windshield. Cause the sun's glaring, but mm-hmm. we know that in Florida, yeah, Florida right? Yeah. <laughs> so I can see the steering wheel of the truck. So I just said, okay, shoot the steering wheel. Cause I know you, as anybody knows their center mass is going to be behind a steering wheel. And just as I'm about to start shooting, um, I'm pulling my trigger back. A little head pops up from behind the steering wheel. And it was a kid. And the reason it was driving was so sporadic is he couldn't reach the pedals. He was an 11-year-old kid. And his head popped up. And when his head popped up, and I, I obviously I remember it vividly, I envisioned my son. I went, oh, crap, it's a kid. But I saw like a flash of my son, and I just decided not, not to shoot. And he decided to plow me into the oak tree. Oh,
0: really? Yeah,
1: he deliberately tried to, which we later found out. So he hit my car, which hit me in between that and the oak tree, and I sustained a massive, uh, uh, a really bad concussion, and I ruptured and damaged my back, um, ruptured a couple of ver- discs in my back, and um, and it was normal business. So, I, uh, you know, I got hurt, but I just went back to work. And uh, we, you know, we took the kid, yeah, we got the kid and we we arrested the poor kid. And uh, I say poor kid, it was poor me. But it was a lose-lose situation. Because if I would have shot him, I would have been the SWAT guy who shot the 11-year-old kid. Murdered an unarmed child. Unarmed black child Mm -hmm. in a black community. And and which was the case, because the mom showed up and said, I was this there picking on him because he was black. And I was like, no, he was trying to kill people, right? And it was... It, at the time, it was, it made Oprah Winfrey and CNN, it was a hugely, uh, an incident that was talked about all over. And, um, my chief at the time protected my identity and we didn't participate in any of that, but it was a big deal at the time. And when we went to court with the kid, um, the judge had asked him, he, he we would just charged him with aggravated assault which is a lesser charge and he said to the kid the judge he said you mean to tell me you deliberately tried to kill this police officer and this 11 year old kid talks into the mic to the judge and he goes fuck yeah i ain't gonna let no fucking pig catch me that's what this 11 year old kid so the judge freaks out slams his gavel down charges him with attempted murder and I think he got 13 years he got 13 years at 11 years old so he's out I lost my entire livelihood at that moment um, so to speak it was the beginning of the downfall for my back so you know being an athlete being a spec ops guy I was as you said earlier eat bullets and move forward and move forward and move forward and I came back to work and and I wanted I was training for the world championships and it just got worse. And then every little thing I did made my back worse. And then, you know, there's work comp that says, hey, you need to be eating Tabs, and you need mm-hmm. to do physical therapy. And I'm like, physical therapy ain't going to fix. It. I had a bone fragment in my spinal cord. Didn't even know it at the time. Really? And my God. It was bad. It was bone on bone. And then, um, you know, it, it 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 drastically changed my life. And then I ended, it got so bad, so quick. Within that time frame, I broke my hand. I shattered my hand. I punched a dude in his forehead, which we all know that doesn't work well. And um, then I tore my rotator cuff all within a cup, like probably a month. And so I'm out of work, right? And it was the sit and wait. And it, this went on for a long time. So I went from going 100 miles an hour and running and biking and all that to sitting on a couch to the point where my back was so bad that I could not even use the bathroom myself. And I had to have all this, you know, surgery and things like that. And uh, that's when the depression kicked in worse than what it was. So remember what I was saying or the perfect storm. And I, re- I remember sitting on the couch every day, all day long for months by myself you know, nobody came to check on me. You know, I was, yeah, I'd already run off all my friends because I was being such a jerk, you know, and, um, I had a really uh, crappy girlfriend at the time who was more consumed in getting her nails done and her hair done and stuff like that than, than me. And, uh, I sat home every day and I joke about it on stage to just to try to lighten the mood. But I said, it was Oprah Winfrey who drove me crazy because I didn't have any channels. I went not a TV watcher, and I'd watch this crap on TV every day. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I can't believe the world's like this. And uh, ultimately, that was the era where I uh, tried to shoot myself. And uh, I, I got all the symptoms, the helplessness, the hopelessness. You know, And my thing was, I was in so much pain physically, and I couldn't eat any. I, I'm not a pill taker. And so I was drinking up to a handle a day all day, every night, every, you know, all the time. And I was in so much mental pain because I just saw my whole life get taken from me. I couldn't run no more. And that was kind of what was saving my life. I couldn't, you know, bike, couldn't surf, all the things that I just loved life. I, I, I was in love with my life. You know, I got to do a lot of cool stuff. It had all been taken from me, from this little punk kid, man, that, you know, for nothing. And uh, I couldn't live like that. And I had that samurai mentality, especially training all those years with the Japanese. You know, I gained that. I was here to serve. I had a purpose to serve and I couldn't serve anymore. And so my mentality was like, it's time for me to go. I can't be here. You know, my kids hate everybody hated me because I was so miserable. And, you know, your your mind, when you're that bad off, your mind plays tricks on you. And, um. So, ultimately, that was the catalyst that led me to my suicide attempt, the first one.
0: All right. Well, I want to get to, you know, obviously, that didn't work. Um, But while we're on the subject, something that I've heard, again, a reoccurring theme, and you said the mind plays tricks on on you, is people will talk about people that have taken their life. Oh, that was cowardly. They left behind this family. You know, what a piece of shit. When people that I've had that have thanked God actually survived, whether it was Kevin Hines that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge mm-hmm. and actually lived, whether it was Dustin Hawkins that was about to drown himself in a one way dive, um, was that feeling of burden. And even though the reality is you leave so much more pain and burden with the family, my, my wife, her boyfriend before me took his own life on the phone to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, I keep seeing the same thing is the mind convinces the person. That they are a burden to the world and that they, the world will be better off. So it's actually a selfless act mm-hmm. through that lens, but it's trying to get people to understand that that lens is wrong, that you're being lied to, like you said.
1: Yeah, it's the, that's it, James. That's really it. That's a question I get, I, I get asked a lot. And, uh, most people that haven't had to experience it, uh, at that level. Um, I, when I came back to work, I was, uh, Two people that in, in my environment uh, said some pretty horrible things to me. One of them was another drug guy I worked with, and he basically called me a sissy and said, you know, I wanted attention. And another lady just basically said, you know, hey, if you're going to freak out and kill people, don't kill me because I'm going on vacation next week. Stuff like that. You know, silly, stupid questions. But the one guy said, you know, I was a coward. And, you know, my thing is, is anybody who knows me knows I'm no punk and I'm no coward. And, um, how do I explain it to people is, you know, people lose their mind. I said, you know, the guy on the corner that everybody sees talking to himself or the woman pushing the shopping cart, like what happened to that person? We all think about that. Like, man, that dude has lost their mind. I experienced that. I got it. I got to experience what that was like. I literally lost my mind and, um, and the mind does play tricks on you when it's that traumatized. It's a, you know, the, the brain is a very complex, a piece of equipment. And, um, it was explained to me so that I could understand how the brain can malfunction was in my terms. And it, basically how I explain to people is if you take a grain of sand every day and drop it in the carburetor of your car, what's going to happen in about a month or two? And everybody's, oh, it's going to start running like crap and spittering and putter. you know, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, that's what happens with the brain with trauma. And every day you put trauma in it and trauma in it, trauma in it. And sooner or later that carburetor is going to clog up and malfunction and start to misfire. And that's what was happening with me. I understood it when it was explained to me. I'm not no fancy PhD guy. I'm just a street guy. So you got to explain, explain to me in street terms. And... Also, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, why don't you stick your hand in that fire? Oh, because it'll hurt and it'll burn or go jump in that fire. No way, man, it'll kill you. Well, I put a gun to my head and pulled the trigger. So obviously, as you said, uh, how do you say it? Selflessness. I was willing to blow my head off to get away from this pain and misery that I was, that's where I was at. So if my brain is telling me, Hey, it's okay to take this gun and blow your brains out. What makes you think I'm thinking about my kids and my family and that type? Something is obviously not there. Something's not right. And that's why we've taken on the task, um, you know, with the foundations that I work with to let's fix this before it happens. Let's get that education and that training in there and let these guys know, Hey, when you start seeing these signs and symptoms, let's get on this before you get to that point. And anybody can get to that point. You'll have general conversations with people that go, Oh my goodness, man, I pulled my back and it was so bad. If uh, I'm telling you, if I had to live another day like that, I was going to jump off a bridge. And then I usually chuckle and go, that's what I did. I didn't jump off a bridge, but I went the same route. Anybody, it can happen to literally anybody.
0: Yeah. Well, with that sand analogy, it's it's a great kind of visual because if you have the healthy coping mechanisms, whether it's the counseling, the exercise, nutrition, sleep, then it's like a, an air gun blowing that sand back out again. Absolutely. But if it's alcohol, opiates, social media, porn, infidelity, then it's pouring sugar in there too.
1: Yeah. And then those are usually, you know, cops and firefighters and they're known for that. And, you know, so we, we actually on our show that we brought that subject up and we were going to do some research with some doctors and go, why does it always go to that? Why do all cops have infidelity and the, the drugs and the alcohol and the firefighter? You know what I mean? What's the connection between the trauma and the results for that? You know, and I went through the same thing you know i did that with my wife karen my my you know my my wife now like i i put her through a living hell she met me a week before i tried to kill myself really and we became friends and she decided that she that i need she needed to be there for me and she stuck through the worst fire you could imagine to years to this day she she deals with it every day but and i'm I'm just truly blessed that i have her in my corner and, uh, you know, she she educated herself and did everything that she could to try to keep me from going in that route, you know, to, or, or backsliding into to that route.
0: Anyway, Yeah. Well, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I mean, obviously the spouses either side, you know, whether it's the spouse to the responder helping or vice versa, you know, as, as a marriage, that's what it's about. You're all going to have good days and bad days. But uh-huh. I'm sure people listening are probably wondering. So with the first attempt, it didn't work. So what was the kind of story behind that?
1: So the I I ended up um my, my girlfriend at the time, she knew that I was you know, I she had seen the signs, I guess. And I had made statements and, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with my gun in my hand and, you know, on my nightstand. And so she had called a couple of guys from work said, I think he's going to kill himself. And so they, what they did was they, they didn't do a very good job at all. They didn't do it. It was all the way across the board handled horribly. The chief at the time in this town treated me horribly. Like, um, they came, they, I, I had a Porsche at the time and I had a gun in the door of the Porsche. And, um, anyway, in the, in Porsches, the doors are secret hiding spots that, um, the door handle things. You, oh, and, really? In the nine eleven, yeah, it's, it's what I had. It's a little secret hiding spot. So I had a gun in there and I was driving. I, I left my house and I drive down the road and I see all these cops, like, Parking there and putting vest on and getting rifles out, and I was like, "Oh wow, man, something bad's about to go down. Let me stop and help, right?" I just instantly Let in. me get my guns. <laughs> yeah, so I pull up. I know all of them. Actually, the one that I pulled over is now the chief of Cocoa Beach and is a, is a dear friend. And I said, Scott, I go, what's going on, man? I go, you guys need my help? And I'm like, yeah, you because know, I knew I had way more training than they did. He goes, actually, Doug, I need to talk to you. I go, okay, man, let me pull off. He goes, no, just stay right there. I said, well, what's going on? He goes, we're actually here for you. And I'm like, the hell are you here for me? I'm like, oh, shit, man. Do I got a warrant? Man, like, did I do something wrong? You know, you, you just start thinking. And he goes, get step out of the car and let's talk. And then the couple other guys came up that I knew and, they ended up Baker acting me, put me in handcuffs, put me in a cop car, and was took me to a hospital. And I was furious. I mean, it, at that moment, everybody was going to get their ass kicked. Everybody I worked with, every one of my friends, everyone in my, the police department, and I lost it out there on the street and the um i mean i tried to fight those guys i got nasty that's why they handcuffed because i was mad i was like first of all you i'm i know what gives you the right to bake rack me and i've given you none of that i've never told anybody um but there was some false information given and so they were just doing their job and um and they they did the best that they could for what they were dealing with i tell them that all the time yeah they treated me very well you know, but at that point I was not happy. You weren't it. treating them well, <laughs> and so I was so mad. So I get stuck in this mental place with prostitutes and drug addicts that I put in there. They all knew me in there, and it was kind of you know, we laugh about it now. They thought I was in there working undercover, and I really wasn't. And so when I finally got out a couple of days later, I was so mad. And because I had called home and when I'd called home from the facility, I'd found out my work came and took all my stuff, all my guns. My girlfriend let him in my safe. They cleaned me out. And so I felt violated. I felt betrayed. You were vulnerable too, probably. What's that? You feel vulnerable as well. Yeah. All of the, it was, it was the worst part of it. And I'm a disciplined guy. And if you, and, and anybody who knows me, if you come pick a fight, you're going to get a fight. And that's what they did. And I can't lose a fight. And I said, Okay, well I'll fix them. So when I as I was leaving in the cop car, I said to the um to the chief now, I said, Hey, can you do me a favor? Don't tow my car. Don't put the Porsche on on a wrecker. it's right down, I said, the keys are in it, just drive it to my driveway and, and leave it there. And so he did. And, but they didn't know about the gun. So when I got home, there was some, my neighbors and there was a couple of my buddies at the front door and my girlfriend was standing. They were waiting for me to come home because they knew I had already prepped everybody like, I'm, it's going to be ugly when I get home. And so I get out and I literally just walk right up to the car, to the porch pull the gun out of the door handle walk right towards every one of them go you think you guys can stop me and i freaking went click bullet in the chamber never fired strike i, I still have it strike point everything to the bullet really? the bullet never went how out. many times have you ever had that happen never yeah never in my career i've seen other guys do it and i i, I had uh, a few failures but not like that and it was um and so when that happened i got dog piled and you know the fight was on and the whole in the drama and that was that was it the gun was taken from me and uh i was calmed down and i went back to work 2 days later
0: Really? there was no follow up or
1: no i was left alone So I end up going back to work. The chief calls me in the office. Um, Not the chief, the, the chief at the time of my work and he calls me in his office and he looks at me and he goes, I don't know what to do with you and I don't know what's wrong with you, but whatever's wrong with you, you need to lock it in a closet and get your ass back to work. That's what he said to me. I said, yes, sir. And so they made me drive around with my buddy. I told you earlier, the one that was always checking on me, that made SWAT with me. Mm -hmm. They said, just work with him, just drive around with him. And that day was SWAT training day. and But I wasn't allowed out of the car. So I had to sit in the car and watch my guys SWAT train. And it just made things worse, right? And then so I went back to work with no care. No health, no aftercare, no, no, none of that. And I started to try to fix it myself. So I went and found myself a doctor through a horrible EAP program who decided to put me on lithium and send me back to work. So now you got a drug agent who gunfights that's on lithium, right? And I realized the next day when my partner and I got out, got into a chase. And when the guy got out of the car and pointed an AK-47 at me 10 feet away and I watched them do it. Now, I'm the type of guy that you're not even going to get out of the car first. I was like, oh, my God, that dude's got a gun. That's what I'm thinking in my slowed up lithium mind. And at that point, I was like, I can't go on like this. So I just quit even taking that. And it progressively got worse. I got hurt again. I had multiple injuries. You know, I ultimately had to have surgery on my, I've had 22 operations. I have 27 screws in my body currently. So, you know, everything started to get progressively worse. And um, um, so I just went about business working and everything at that point, you know, got worse and worse and worse. My behaviors, my alcohol, you know, I, I had received no, no sort of help. So I'm progressing into, I, I think it was about six months um, had gone by, and I just couldn't do it. You know, I, I couldn't do a, a, I couldn't physically barely move anymore. I was suffering at work, um, you know, f- physically and mentally. Um, my girlfriend relationship was horrible. Um, I was trying, it, it, the only thing that was keeping me was Cameron. He, you know, my, my other kids, you know, were spending half the time with their mom, you know, their, their real mom. And, um, and I didn't have a good relationship with her at the time, you know, either. And, uh, so I had all these compounding factors and the only thing that was keeping me around was Cameron. He, you know, I was 40 something years old and I had this little baby who just made me smile and, you know, and, and I got really close with him because I, w- I ended up spending like a year out of work with the back surgery prior. So, you know, I got to really attach to him. Uh, uh, and, uh, so ultimately, um, it, it It got to the next point where I just, it was time for me to go. I I had no desire to live this life um, as a normal person, as a injured, disabled person. I I didn't want to live it as a triathlete, a a former triathlete and a former this and a former that. And I couldn't take the pain anymore. Um, It just, it was horrible. Every day, all day long, all I had was demons in my head and fighting and trauma and all these things. And so I decided that I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to kill myself and get out of here. And it was no big deal. Now, I never talked, you know, I didn't need sympathy. I didn't need anybody's, you know, boo-hoo and nobody really, you know, I become secret, uh, secretly in my life, you know, I I wasn't associating with drawn and at the time. Um, Which is, I I tell people, I had, I want to say it was about 6,000 square foot house. Oh, wow. I had two Porsches. I had a motorcycle. I had a catamaran. I had money. I had the craziest things going on. My entire life, I dreamed of having a koi pond. I'm a huge Japanese history buff and, you know, and I had that. I had it all. I had a pretty trophy girlfriend and I had all the toys and, I would come home from work and I would just be miserable. I wouldn't, I'd, I'd look at the portion. I'd be like, Oh man, I got to watch it. There's sea salt. You know, I'm complaining. Oh man, there's salt on my cars every day. Like, cause I lived on the water. So I just lived down the road. So I had the ocean on one side and the river on the, on the other side of me. And it, I would come home and I would do the same thing every day. I would get out of the car. I would sit on the front patio. I would get a cigar and get a drink, drink, eat and go to bed. I quit doing everything. And it was just pain and misery. And, and the reason I tell that, not in a bragging stance, but don't let a picture fool you. Like most of my guys were like, what do you got to be depressed about? Man, you got it made in the shade. Yeah. I, mean, I had, Literally I would two Porsches and a Hummer, a real one in the, like I had everything, three car garage. I mean, you, anything a man is trying to collect our toys, right? At that time, I thought that was important, but really what I was doing was trying to buy my happiness. that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to buy comfort and happiness and I couldn't achieve it. Not in any of that. And, um, it, it took my current wife to teach me that. (laughs) So, uh, anyway um i i I guess i was showing the signs some strange signs i wasn't aware but i was giving all my stuff away and at, at the time like my my buddy told me you know i was sponsored by garmin and oakley and all this stuff as an athlete so i was giving all this stuff away every day and money and and a couple of my buddies were like man that's that's odd you know, I was the type of guy that gave my shirt off. my. I stole them that way. I give everybody everything. I just, it's just stuff. And, but this was different. And, um, and so one day I was like, I'm just going to, we had a little secret hideout hiding spot in town, a, a cemetery where we'd all go smoke cigars. And I go, I'm just, I'm finishing my paperwork. I'm going to go drive down to the cemetery. I'm going to smoke this cigar and I'm going to shoot myself. And so, on my way to the cemetery, right on the corner, call comes out that there's a fight. And my my buddy got sent to that fight. So, I'm like, well, I'm, I can't let him go to a fight by himself. It's my boy. I love him. So, I'll go help him fight and then I'll go shoot myself. This is what I'm thinking in I my know, head. Even
0: which in itself is, right. is you know, crazy. It, it, but,
1: it's crazy, yeah. but it was normal. That's mm-hmm. the process. And so, um, the the particular, when I tell the story on stage, I have a picture of this guy. And remember I told you the picture of the three, the the Dominican, the black, and the white. that The the black guy, um, to this day, is one of my dear friends. We nicknamed him Darkness, because he was real, he's one of the best looking guys you've ever seen. He's got this beautiful smile, electric smile. You know, when you're this depressed a smile, can save your life. And it did for me. And so I pull up and he just smiles at me with this huge white smile. And I'm going to show you a picture of him in a minute. So you get the full picture. And basically he was smiling at me, laughing, going like, ha ha, I beat you to it. And they all ran when I showed up. Like, cause he knew <laughs> I wanted to get out and fight, right? He knows me like that. But when I pulled up, I had my gun in my hand. And so I didn't wear a fancy blue Cop uniform. I wore a tack vest and my gun was on my chest, but I had it out of the holster and I had it in my hand. And so, when that took place, it hit me. I'm like, I can't go shoot myself now because JT's gonna have to clean this mess up. And I, I love him, man. And even as messed up as I was, I didn't want to hurt my friend. I didn't want him to have to deal with that. So I said, I'm just gonna go back to the office do some paperwork, and I'm just when I go home tonight, I'll just do it on the beach. I was like I'll walk out to the beach and just freaking do it. And um they had seen those. And so when I went back to the department they were waiting for me, uh, the intervention. So they had like they literally had my teammates like hiding around corners because they're like, "Man, this dude's a lunatic, man. He he's got the potential to take us all out." And when I got to work, they they were waiting for me and the chief was one of my former SWAT guys and drug agent. We, I worked for him. He was the boss when I was in the drug unit. And he had just become the chief three days. He didn't even sign the paper. He was acting chief at this moment. And they brought me in there and they were like, um, we need to send him off again and we need to do all this stuff. And he actually stepped up and said, no, we're going to fix him. We created this monster. He's one of us. We're going to fix him and uh they basically you know had to baker act me again, but what they did is they took me to a special hospital in Tennessee, I think it was like Tennessee or Mississippi, and my that same guy he put me in his car and drove me thirteen hours, left his family behind, drove me to this hospital in Tennessee, and sat in a room for five days while they figured out what was wrong with me and then they took me to another treatment center. And uh, that's where I started the recovery process. If if it wasn't for he's the current chief of my department now, and uh, I talk about him all the time on stage and on show, he, um, he you know, he saved my life, man. He, he believed in me because I know this guy. You know, and in that era, most people thought, "Man, this is a, you know, I'm the leader of a SWAT team, so it's the most high liability position in the department, right? You know, I'm, my decisions and tactical planning and things of that nature. So to, you know, even at that position and being an agent, he, um, he said, just go get help. And when, and when you're good, you can come back to work. And I go, cause I didn't want to lose, you know, I was like, Hey, if you do this, I'm going to lose my son. I'm going, to lose, I, I, I'm going to lose my team. I'm going to lose everything. Don't do this to me because I have to because you're going to lose your life. As crazy as I'm saying this, five minutes ago, I was going to blow my brains out. But then I'm arguing with him going, I'm gonna lose everything. Don't do this. Yeah. So he knew how crazy I was. And and he in we laugh about it now, but he Joe, he says he told me in his office, and there was probably 12 people in there. He's like, I'm about to punch you in your face, man. Shut up, and you're you know, cause we I started arguing. And he came to visit me. And my guys came to visit me, and it was the first time that I experienced, I like that abundant love, you know what I mean. And when I was sitting in that office, I saw these guys crying because, you know, I told them, "My God, I don't want to be here no more. Please, just let me go. I don't want to be here." And they were like, "We want you here. You're our boy." And that was the the start of rebuilding and reforming and. And uh, key moments that I learned of things we need as first responders in our lives. And um, so uh, a smile, a simple smile from my friend saved my life. And so I'm big on telling people, man, you smile, man. Be nice, man. You know, instead of walking down the hall when the guy walks by you with a puss on his face, You know, it's what they said I always did. I always had that bad, you know, frown. And and, and instead of walking by him and going, oh, he's an asshole, maybe pull him over side and go, hey, are you okay? I'm just worried, man. You seem down and stuff. Is there anything I can do for you? Because nobody wants to bury their friend. And that's what they did. From one chief to another chief. One chief who told me to get my act together to another chief who said, what can I do to save you and fix you? And that's a, that's a whole nother subject of why it comes from the top up too? like, we need uh, people to value, you know, to support mental health. And then, um, I did, I got help. I came back. It was a rough road, you know, for my wife, you know, she, she went through about a year of hell, probably more. She'd probably be better as that. She probably still, it's probably five years uh, (laughs) or six and seven, but, uh, now, but, um, uh, it was rough when I came back, but I got my job back. I got my team back. I gave my stripes up. Um, he had, my chief said, hey, get, you've got too much on your plate because I'm notorious for that. You know, even now, look at me. I'm retired, but I work harder than I ever did. So I did, but I got my team back and uh, I started rebuilding and I started training again and uh, getting physical and getting in shape, and uh, I ended up competing again. I ended up winning the series championship that year. But the coolest part was um, I was nominated for off, Agent of the Year, Officer of the Year, and I won it. Amazing. For two things, which is rare in our industry. I got nominated for, I came back and I arrested 147 conviction, arresting convictions of drug dealers in one year. And I also started uh, implementing the mental health program. So I was nominated by two people. I ended up going from shooting myself to becoming officer of the year. And then shortly after that, it just the wear and tear on the body. And, and I felt led to, um, it's let these younger guys chase the dope dealers. I'm going to go save these cops lives out there. Absolutely. Uh, and firefighters and veterans, you know, but um, somebody ha- had to do it because I, when I came back I saw how broken the system is and I'm like man this is messed up and the other thing I noticed when I came back was I wasn't the only one now that I had a little knowledge and I saw mental health from a different view I would sit in my briefings and roll calls and I was working with ATF and the Marshalls Unit and DEA and FBI and, 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 and everywhere and I was like man everybody's messed up it comes with this territory and uh even the and the fire department guys um you know do you ever hear this the did you ever come across josh vandergrift um yes i have met him yep. yeah so josh and i worked together he worked in the same city so we you know even when that happened with josh man i was like man something has to be done I've spent 20 years fighting for people I don't even know, putting my life on the line, that don't even like me. I've been, You know what I mean? I've mm-hmm. been abused. I got holes all through my body from them. Um, maybe I'll take some time and do something for the guys that do like me and I do know. And that's what started it.
0: Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you for telling the story. I mean, it's so powerful. And again, when we get these stories from people that were – uber tactical athlete type a you know leaders and they have the transparency and courage to tell the story that's who we need to hear it from you know, i always joke if there's a guy with you know with a flowery shirt that's you know kind of hippie like dude oh i want to tell you about my feelings well, of course you do steve you, you always tell us about your feelings but yeah. when it's the swat guy the <laughs> seal you know now we're like okay now we need to shut up and listen but is it a glaring difference between the two and this is again a reoccurring theme is the first one whether it was the injury or whether it was, you know, stick your feelings in a closet or the actual Baker Act, which I've had, you know, Sally Spencer Thomas talking about how terrible that actually is for mental health. And my own little boy, 11 years old, his he was sent there twice through horrible policing from his school and then in the community. Um, but one scenario, you're left alone without any of your tribe, your brothers and sisters around you. To deal with everything and now it's magnified. The second scenario from the smile to the support is the polar opposite. And I think that's something that we have to understand. If, if you have a colleague that starts acting like an asshole, which everyone of us have seen and every one of us have been at one point, ask yourself, did, you know, person X just decide to be an asshole one day or is there something going on? And so, We don't want to shy away from it. Don't want to push their buttons in the station. We need to do the exact opposite. And just like you said, be there. What is going on? What are you feeling? What's going on at home? How can we help? And then hold their hand metaphorically to the point where they can get help? Because as you pointed out, the solutions out there, which we'll get to in a second, are fucking awful. And the number of barriers to entry for someone in crisis getting help, whether it's EAP, whether it's, you know, the insurance, set them up for failure and is almost like a path to suicide you know in some respects so it's so powerful you having those two side by side comparisons that simple compassion that we've talked about through this whole conversation that humanity is what saved your life
1: yeah and the compassion and and you know thank god that i had all those people come into my circle you know in that time and and have remained in the in in the circle you know my, my, including my wife, I put her through living hell, humiliated her, embarrassed her and was horribly mean to her and threw her out of her, her own home, you know, at this home here. And so what she did is she moved down to the corner in a duplex so she could watch me every day and check on me every day because she knew I was falling again, you know, and just stuck through it, but stayed. And it took me 40 some years to realize we were talking about this in the very beginning, what love is. I never knew what love was. I was never taught it from, you know, the beginning from with my father. It took me all the way up until a grown adult to realize what it means to be loved and, and you know, and stuff like that. I needed that. These are important things. You know, you can only train. I've been trained. There's no more you can train me. Right. I mean, I've been there and done that. These are the other things we don't focus in our career. Um, you know, and I, I, I go to both sides, you know, like as, as a firefighter, man, every time a firefighter shows up on scene, man, it's bad. It's an accident or somebody's dying or somebody's seriously hurt or there's a building on fire. Because I always made fun of the firefighters. I'm like, <laughs> if I pulled up and your house was on fire and you go, help me, you know, would it? Do they call you, fire. what do they call it? They, they call you officer? I don't
0: know what the political correct, correct right, term is. I don't know either. Buddy. Uniformed person <laughs> of... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me Mr. Fire! my house
1: on fire. I'd just look at him and be like, fuck it, man, we'll build you a new one tomorrow, man. Just like, it's on fire. I'm not missing. So I'm scared of fire. And then, you know, the fire, was teased, the fire guys would tease us and go, man, the dude's got a gun in there. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, let's get in there. I liked that action. That wasn't the... The core. Now there are some traumatic things that I've been through in combat wise, but um, you know, for the most was the accum the totality of the circumstances, the accumulative trauma over the years. And it's, you know, I can handle the stress of a gunfight. That excites me. I'm all for it. That's a party. Like, hey, invite me to that party. I want to come. But stick me in a room with like three cats and a baby. No, I'm jumping off a <laughs> cliff, right? Or or something of that. And so I tell people all the time, stress on a one to 10, a 10 is a 10. So a 10 for me and a 10 for my wife, my wife teaches autistic kids how to communicate every day. How do you do that? I can barely get my two twins in the next room to communicate with me, man, right? That stress for her when she comes home on a 10, a 10 is a 10. Don't matter if you're a library, a cop, firefighter, or a clerk. And so... Um, it's important that we focus more on that and the compassion towards that type of stuff. in our departments and work areas, my chief is a big component that says like, hey, listen, man, look what we did for this guy. We got him healthy in his mind and healthy in his body. And he came back to work and knocked it out of the park. It's like to me, it seems like business 101. If you take care of your 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 people, they're going to take care of you. And instead of just, you know, suck it up mentality, not, you know, not only does the department train you to your medical stuff and, you know, for you guys and like the the cop stuff, but let's focus on them and making them happy and healthy and making them want to come to work. And now look at these cops and firefighters today. I mean, they go to work. I had a guy complain to me yesterday, man, the police aren't doing anything anymore. I said, can you blame them? They get out of their car, a guy stabs him, he shoots him. I've been stabbed before, and, and it gave me every right to shoot the person. But now, you're putting the dude in jail. So you think he wants to get out of his car and help somebody? No. Yeah. You know, you got firefighters trying to go put a fire, and you're blocking their view. Mm-hmm. And so then the person dies and burns up. And well, How do you think that firefighter feels, man? He could have saved that, right? And that's a true story. It was a kid. Wasn't They just... One of these towns where they were rioting, the building was on fire, and the firefighters, they, the rioters blocked them and wouldn't let them put the fire I didn't out. Even
0: hear that story? And the
1: freaking kids died in the building. I'm like, come on, man. So now they got to live with that the rest of their life, you know. So. We need to focus on that and get people back on their feet and get them healthier and happier and, and and the same thing for at home. That's why we focus a lot on spouses and the home. You know, you fix the the guy, it also fix the family and and we ha- humanity. And what we're supposed to do. I people all the time thank me for what I do. Hey, thank you for helping me out. No, that's what we're supposed to do. You're down, face down in the ground. It's okay to have somebody come over and pick you up off the ground. It's okay. That's what we should be doing.
0: Yeah, it's it's not called better. Caucasianity or blackity. It's no, called humanity. Humanity, because we're all human.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I just I don't understand it.
0: No, that's crazy. Well, so so I want to touch on one thing before we go to what you ended up doing and the projects that you you founded. Um, one thing that I that you talked about that you ended up getting the awards and everything that I see, there's a resistance still to. Yeah, the the, addressing the mental health stuff, and I think that framing it in the in the the way that you have post traumatic growth. So you had a SWAT leader who was operating, you know, obviously at a much lower level than he would have, you know, when everything was good. You go take care of your mental health. You address it. You grow from it. Now you become a much more resilient, functional, tactical, you know, person so even if you know there's this whole thing about oh it's weakness well let me ask you this if you had a back injury and you went back and you pt'd and you fixed it and you did your mobility now you're actually stronger than you ever were before that's the person you want in the uniform well why is it any different mentally if you let these men and women go i argue even give them counseling at the front door of the of the profession forget polygraphs and psych tests they're bullshit yeah. Take that same money and put it in counseling, and then they have a go-to person the rest of their career. But every time you do a mental reset, you're you're a much more resilient, focused, effective, you know, good decision-making, tactical personnel.
1: Absolutely, I preach that all the time, and I tell people all the time, man, I wish I would have trained harder mentally. As an athlete, the decisions I would have made, I would have took, I would have ate healthier and I would have not, you know, drank, I would have just done things in that component. As a sniper, my decisions would have been clearer and more sharp and precise. As a SWAT leader, you know, the decisions I would have made. As a drug agent, the way I handled my cases, all these things, you know, as an athlete uh, and as you know, and even as, as fighters, right? You come back and you work on the specific moves and things. You, you always come back and redo it. And that was the one thing that I uh, that I kick myself because as that athlete, you always analyze, OK, man, I could have done this, this and this. So I'm going to work harder on that. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have worked harder on my mental health. And I would have been that much better and that much stronger because, you know, I couldn't get much faster than I was. I couldn't get much quicker swimming and biking. I was already at, at maxed out. Like, there's only so much buy, your machine can perform. And, and, and so I preach this all the time, man. Like, listen to the chiefs and administrations. If you like, we need to be teaching this in police academies. And the polygraph, I passed the polygraph, and I'm a lunatic, man. I lied my way
0: through it three times.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, I,
0: I did drugs, but I'm not going to tell you that because no. then I'm not going to get the job.
1: Everybody lies. <laughs> there was not one question on there that I could tell the truth about. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to lie on every one of them, and I'll just confuse the hell out of them. <laughs> and uh, th- yeah, you're right, James. They're ridiculous. But let's focus on the mental health. And in the, in the kids becoming uh, first responders nowadays they are not like you and I. They're these kids who are stuck to a phone, so they don't know how to communicate like we do. And so we really need to start focusing on, on this type of stuff and training them early and giving them the tools to have to think clear. And listen, if your mind is healthy, your body's going to be healthy and vice versa. And, and I, I explain that to people, man, when you look good, you feel good. And when you look like crap, you feel like crap. That's the same thing with your head. If your head ain't right, you're going to feel like crap. You're going to do things that are crappy. The whole thing is a downfall. And if you guys are coming to work happier and healthier, you're, they're going to call out sick less. Less overtime, less bull crap workman comp cases, things of that nature. So the department's gonna run smoother, the morale's gonna go up, the people are gonna work better together, and they're going to not make you know, if your brain is just consumed with stuff, of course these cops are going out and making horrible mistakes. It's not easy to get out of car and have people screaming at you and throwing stuff at you and pointing phones at you. So you can't tell which one of those phones is a gun or a knife. And that's why so many cops are being killed. And then they're thinking now like, Oh, well, if I retaliate, I'm going to jail, you know? Um, yep. And, and so that's a, that's a whole nother topic. But if we focus on that mental health, then yeah, I think we can definitely put a den in it.
0: Absolutely. And I don't want to get too deep. So I know we got to let you go soon. You got another appointment, but, um, the, the sleep element too, so that we have to understand even more so in the fire service because the average work week is 56 hours a week. I mean, it's crazy, but we have to understand if you're going to ask a man or a woman to stay up all night to hold lives in their hands, whether it's a rescue component or, you know, maybe take lives to protect another, you can't work these people into the ground. And the bank tellers of the world get to go home every day to their family and sleep in their own bed. Yeah, the mid, the first responders of the world work 20 or you know, 12 or 24 hours. And, you know, then they're understaffed. They have to stay, they're forced to stay even longer. Mm-hmm. And we got it completely backwards. So why do you think, you know, that one, one of the, the factors in the fact that your kid was reaching for his driver's license and he got shot is because, like you said, maybe in that particular department, lack of training, overwork, you know, mental, uh, um, Uh, Issues that hadn't been addressed. But I mean, how do you make a split second decision when you're in an environment that sets you up for failure? And we have to reverse that. Same with the drug thing that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. We have to give these men and women the tools to thrive. And the athletes of the world, as you know, the professional soccer players, the Ronaldos, Mm -hmm. they're not staying up all night. Yeah, no, they They're, got
1: people rubbing their feet. Exactly.
0: So, we don't have to go that far, but, yeah. you know, but I mean, yeah, we have to look at ourselves as tactical athletes, and like you said, the brain is the most important muscle in the body. I know it's not a muscle, but, you know, that's no, the one yeah. we have to focus on the most.
1: And you're right, This the sleep component is something that's not talked about. And if you look at those uh, studies and the graphs where they say, hey, if you you know don't sleep if you sleep 8 hours you're you know it's 80% or si- you know mm, the blood I, alcohol I've comparisons seen, uh, yeah you know how it changes the way the body and the and the mind focus and you know like i told you like i slept like 2 hours last night cuz you know i heard the frog chirping in the backyard <laughs> i'm having jungle nightmares and you um and as a firefighter you When when do you sleep all night long? You go to sleep, you get woke up. You go back, you fall asleep, you get woke back up. Like you, And even if you're sleeping in the back of your head, you're just waiting for that alarm to go off.
0: It's not real sleep.
1: No, it's not real sleep. And it's exhausting, and you're there for like 24 hours, right? Sometimes 48 hours. And then for a cop, it's the same thing. It's cops work every – cops and firefighters work every holiday. Not some – every holiday and during their birthdays and their kids functions. I missed everything in my career and it's exhausting. And, you know, as as an athlete, even, yeah, if you don't have your rest, like there's no way. And I've been through that type of training where you don't sleep for three days and you start to be delusional. And, um, you know, you can, as a first responder, you can go three days without real sleep. And the three days in, in – if you do that training, like for military guys, been through SEER training or SEAL training or any stuff like that, man, it's brutal.
0: But it's a one-off.
1: Yeah. It's a one-off. And so, you know, they, but they don't think like that because the administrations of police departments and fire departments are like staffing, budgets overtime. So it's work. Oh, you're, you're forced to hold today. You're like, man, I got to get home, man. It's I'm tired. It's my son's birthday. And they're like, too bad. So sad, man. You signed up for it. And then, so that's a domino effect. Then the guy's depressed. He's sad. He's mad. He's upset. He or she. And then you got the wife calling you on the phone, cussing you out, your kid calling, crying you, and you're on your way to an armed burglary or a f- house that's on fire. And you're supposed to get out of the car and make a radical decision as people are screaming at you for help. And and it's a guy who just worked from 6 at night to 6 in the morning, a 12-hour shift. This happened in my department all the time. And then that guy's got to hold another 6 hours. And then he gets to go home for a couple hours and come back and do it again at 6 o'clock that night. Mm-hmm. That's insane. It is. And then they want to blame it on the guy and put the, put the guy or the girl in jail because they made a bad mistake or they lose their job. Split
0: second call. Yeah.
1: It is, you know, that, that physical component of sleep deprivation in first responder world is critical. Absolutely. One of the most critical things out there. And and I'm a big, I don't believe in the 12 hour shifts. You know, I just, I, I just, I think it's too much. And in uh, the schedulings are too much, and the date, you know, it's, it, it's, and, and that it, it compacts things. And that's potentially, did any, this guy, I don't know his name, but the George Floyd thing? I'm um, that police officer that that was kneeling on the guy's neck. Yeah. I stood up for him because I go, I'm watching that video a million times. I don't see no intent in that guy's eye to, to kill Mr. Floyd. What I saw was him staring in a daze at everybody probably pointing phones at him, right? Who's coming up? And, and, and I don't know if he's wrong or right. I wasn't there, right? But then I thought, you know, he's over... You? I've been in that position where you're like, oh, crap, you snap at him and go, man I, I just, man, I just was sitting out here like a sitting duck. Could he have been out of sleep for three days, right? It Could have, would have, should have. I don't know the story as much as, you know, and you can't believe anything you hear on the news. No. But... You know, that's the type of stuff that happens to guys out there, man. You know, was he working three days straight and had no sleep and was just kind of half out of it and wasn't paying attention to what he was doing? Well, now they, now we know that the guy didn't die from that, but it's still a factor. Yeah. I mean, and these are the things that are, this is why we are part of the reason why we are where we are today in our society, you know, is lack of care um, for him.
0: No, exactly. And I think that what made the George Floyd thing so bad, um, was that if it, if that guy been on his own in an alleyway somewhere waiting for backup, it'd be one thing. But all those other officers around, someone should have frickin'. So that was yeah. a collective yeah. huge drop of the ball that resulted in a death. And like you said, whether he was dying from something else, I saw a little bit. So again, I'm not well versed, but even the lackadaisical kind of approach from the medics when they showed up. You know, there was definitely some, you know, domino effect of some bad decisions that day.
1: And those environments are tough. Yeah. Like I've been to Chicago and I've been to Seattle. I've been to all these towns and they're, you know, they don't make any money. They work ultra hard. People hate them. You know, people are killing Killing them left and right, killing cops, killing firefighters. I mean, ever in your life did you ever think you, firefighters are going to be bringing a bulletproof vest with them on the truck? No,
0: well, to this day, I still step to the side of a door when right, I knock. Exactly. It doesn't matter if it's my son's friend that I'm yeah. going to go pick him up from a birthday party. So yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. and and the and, and you guys are the guys showing up to save their lives, and yep. you and you have those factors to deal with. So of course, when they get out on the street, they're you know they're they're just not into it anymore and they're disgruntled and they're tired and they're depressed and sad and so um, yeah they they need to refocus on how they're going to train and how they're going to help people and in, in, in responders in that capacity Absolutely. or they can send social workers see if that works well for them <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright so transitioning to being part of the solution so tell me about Survive First kind of what you made you decide to start that and then tell people what it is
1: so What, um, how survive first was founded was, um, I, I needed to be able to provide uh, what I noticed. Let me step back was partly what I experienced is the resources weren't available and not only were they not available, they, um, most cops and firefighters don't get help because they can't afford it. It, It's the same reason why uh, drug addicts don't get help because they can't afford it. And, you know, for me, um, it was $50 copay every multiple times a week. And I was like, man, I'm not paying all this. I got, man, my kid needs braces. I got to do this, that, and the other, you know, and I could afford it. But I noticed that none of the first responders were getting help because they couldn't afford the copays. And then the EAP programs were horrible. Oh, we can get you in in three weeks. You know, you got a guy who says, I'm suicidal. We'll get you in in three weeks. And then you go and it's uh, some crappy doctor that really has no experience in, in working with first responders. So, you know, all those issues came into play. So I, um, I decided I wanted to take the no out of any first responder getting help. And the only way I could do that was to be able to get funding and set up a program where they could first responder could call and trust in who they were calling, meaning that nobody was gonna tell on them. There was gonna be confidentiality to it. Cause you know, we're all scared of that. Like you call the AP, they're gonna bill us, they're gonna my boss gonna know, they're gonna retaliate. So I wanted to take the no out of all that. And so that was the meaning of why I formed Survive First. And I had a bunch of cool people in my circle and good friends that could help me get it going. And I just started making phone calls and was like, I want to be able to help people. And also when a cop needs help or firefighter, we don't need to put them in a hospital with the same people they've been treating and arresting, you know, the bake rack thing. Let's, we should have a specific place. Cause listen, if, if a cop gets arrested, they don't put him in the general cell cause he's going to be dead. So, we needed that different mentality. Um, So, that's why I started, uh, that's how I founded uh, Survive First. And what we do is we basically provide all the resources that a first responder and their family, because I noticed there's a lot of organizations out there that help first responders, but not their families, or they'll um, help the family after the person has committed suicide. So... If you're going to fix a first responder and send them home to a nightmare, you're not fixing the first responder. Because I had a nightmare at home at the time as well that nobody was addressing, nor myself. So we help first responders and their families with any resource they need um, related to trauma, whether it's addiction or it's treatment or it's therapy or we even – a first responder needs to go to a treatment center – in another state, I think it's a good idea to go to a different state because it kind of puts you on vacation. It kind of puts you out of sight, out of mind type of deal. And, um, you know, who can afford to do that? So that's the other thing we do is we help uh, assist with copays, pays um, plane tickets, take the no out of somebody saying, no, I can't go. Well, what can we do to help you So get you back on your feet? And uh, so that's how it started. I've been in the business long enough now and in this industry that that my team, as you know, most of the guys like I've come across some really cool people out there that are doing good work. And um, and and what we do, too, is we go to these facilities that claim that they're you know, they can help first responders. So we we go and we see what we think, um, you know, if it's acceptable, um, you know, you and You don't want to send a first responder to a place that's got 80, you know, convicted felons in there, you know, for drug trafficking, that's not gonna work well. And the responder's not gonna be comfortable. You're not gonna be able to identify
0: with the people who trying identify, well. right? Yeah.
1: And um and then also there's unfortunately there's a lot of shady people in this business, uh, in every business. But there's organizations that are just trying to make money off of us and off of our insurance. And it's all about the money for them So they put a compromise. And I just believe that Every, there should be no compromise when it comes to a first responder's life. This person has put their life on the line for you and everybody else every day of their life. It's time for us to put our life on the line for them and help them. They're in this predicament because of the job they, d- they decided to do. So we go and vet everything to make sure that the organizations that we work with and use are the top notch. And at least have the right backing and education and training to treat first responders. So we, yeah, we, we use Chateau Recovery in Utah is, is what you're asking. Um, they're wonderful. Um, they, they do amazing work with first responders. Um, and w- we have all kinds of other ones on our, you know, on our sites that that we work with as well, because, you know, not everybody can go there. We have people that don't want to leave Florida. So we have facilities in Florida. We have facilities in Arizona and Texas, California and Boston, um, because it might be more and it, it, not every place has the right fit. And we also work with a company called Stepstones, who's a, uh, a partner of Survive First, Stepstones Connect, and they are a online virtual therapy program. And they do pretty amazing stuff. I mean, from the, the access of your cell phone or your computer or laptop. And that's a pretty neat program because, you know, most cops don't want to go sit in a lobby full of people. They're looking at you. You're looking at them. So, you know, there's always that fear factor. Um, so that's a program that is and, and that company also works with sleep deprivation, everything across the board. Really? They are really doing they're working with studies. Um, so we like the, the way they're going in that direction. And uh, obviously, in, in taking better care, providing a resource that you can use one company to provide so you don't even have to call EAP you can call this company and they will set you up with therapy they will set you up with if you need to go to treatment they will set you up with uh everything you need to get back on your mental uh, health path so um those are some of the companies that we work with yeah
0: beautiful uh, that's amazing and that's what i've seen the barrier to entry i've heard EAP Horror story after horror story, you know, counselors that are supposed to be helping the responders in tears, some even being told to leave. Mm-hmm. I can't help you get out of my office. Yeah. You know, so, and then the financial side. Oh, yeah, there's a great counselor in town. Great. Oh, but they're not under your insurance. You we, know. um,
1: I had a nightmare with the AP and, uh, as I told you with the lithium. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, the, uh, and it was three visits. So, you go in there and spill your guts for three visits with Satola, three hours, and then they go, Yeah, you're messed up. I'm going to refer you to another doctor. And that's the doctor you got to start paying. And of course, that's going to compromise that already. Most families can't afford police officers, firefighters, school teachers. They don't make that. They're not in that financial bracket. And so they back off of that and they don't, you know, they don't do it. So, you know, the EAP thing is great for some part. I'm not going to bash them and say they're horrible. It's good in some areas, but there needs to be improvement. And uh, I met with the president, uh, national president of EAP. She's a wonderful lady and and really is working hard to fix the programs, but that's a task in itself. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's where it comes down to the cities uh, and the municipalities to do a better job of vetting their EAP providers and and vetting and implementing new and improved programs.
0: Absolutely. Well, speaking of Survive First, where can people find that online?
1: So, www.survivefirst.us. Um, and that's uh, all our information is on there. And we do everything from training and education to providing. Um, any kind of resource that first responder, their family members. And we even help veterans, too. Um, You know, we don't talk about that much but because I'm always in the first responder world, but we do that as well. And um, they can also, part of our new partnership uh, we do with training and education uh, is Trauma Behind the Badge. And that's traumabehindthebadge.com. And all our information's on there and trauma behind the badge. uh, That's the team of guys, as you know, most of them. And um, we we respond to critical incidents if we have to like an agency that's under attack or, you know, had a suicide or an on duty death. We have the ability to go there and set them up in person with resources and provide them with training and education and the resources they need to get back on their feet. Beautiful. And for
0: people listening, if they happen to be, you know, from a background where they're able to contribute and they're looking for a cause, you guys obviously need funding for those?
1: Uh, yeah, we strictly work off of donations and fundraising. Um, we're also a nonprofit, profit and 100% of our proceeds go to first responders. So there's no paychecks, there's no salaries, there's no company cars or any of that. All that money goes straight to the first responders and their families.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, Doug, I just want to say thank you. It's been amazing. I know you've got an appointment now. I feel like we could talk for another, you know, two or yeah, three hours. So maybe we'll yeah. have to do another one down the road. But again, to to come from your background, to hold positions that you've held, you know, honorably through your career. Um, but then be so transparent and courageous when it comes to like We talked about the drug side, whether it's, you know, your own personal battles and then, you know, the success stories now. And here you are. We're talking about all the injuries you had looking in great shape and, and getting ready to compete again.
1: That's the goal. <laughs> this is the year. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it.
0: Brilliant. Well, so thank you so much for for coming on.
1: Oh, no, it's my honor, man. It's it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And thanks for coming and sitting and chatting with me. I know we've been trying for a long time. So you're next. We're bringing you on our show. (laughs) We want to talk about your new book. We're excited about it. I think it's going to help a lot of people.